Onward through our fire and blood journey, we continue. Aegon's conquest took a lot of preparation, though perhaps less than one would normally guess at for an endeavor of this magnitude. Perhaps surprisingly as well, he announced his claim on the Seven Kingdoms before making the vast majority of those preparations. He didn't even give himself time to gear up before putting everyone on notice. Was that a mistake? If so, not one that made a lot of difference. It still all worked out pretty well. But I do rather believe it to be consistent with his actions throughout both the conquest and his reign. He always projects an era, an aura, an era, that's an era too, an aura of superiority. He never treats anyone like an equal, even those who may appear to be stronger. He just sets about proving that no, they were not, in fact, stronger. He was the one that was stronger. And this is in, comes up in a lot of different ways, not just militaristically, politically, intrigue, everything. Just everything about Aegon suggests superiority. You won't be his ally. You will bend the knee or else. He doesn't use a lot of deception or cunning. He uses some. But mostly he just comes right at you. There's definitely a method to this boss attitude, which is that no one afterwards can claim that he isn't the strongest. He leaves no doubt. And it worked. <laughs> he intended for everyone to be in awe of what he and his family and their dragons could do, which is a testament to holding peace for the long term. No one's going to challenge that. Well, then things are going to stay peaceful. Throughout this episode and going forward, we'll see just how Aegon does it. We'll keep an eye on his strategy. And all the nuances within, because it sounds very straightforward, but it's an intelligent thing. It's an intelligent plan. It's almost ironic, actually, the nuance and subtlety present in this extremely direct approach. It's remarkably foresighted, too. Right, conquer in a way that leaves no doubt to how your reign will be carried out. Face every challenge head-on so that the realm doesn't see it as a close-one thing. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It was pretty definitive. Make sure everyone knows that. And make, if it had been a much bigger challenge, Aegon still would have won. So there's not a lot of room there. Win by a long, you know, win by a mile, and what's anyone going to do about it? Well, they're going to be cowed. Probably. <laughs> All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. You say six out of seven were cowed. <laughs> <laughs> six out of seven were cowed. That's right. Hello and welcome, everybody. This our live streams for Fire and Blood, as all of our live streams are, except during TV season, are at 3 p.m. on Eastern on YouTube. Every video is on YouTube and Spotify afterwards. That's right, all the videos are on Spotify. All the fire for at least for the run of Fire and Blood, every episode is posted as a video. Audio only episodes are available everywhere you find podcasts, and they are ad free if you listen to them on Patreon. There's no ad-free videos on Patreon, though, unfortunately. There's just too much bandwidth. Videos are much, 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 much larger than audio files. So it's hard for us to have multiple copies of those. But anyway, we give you lots of choices, different ways to experience our show. How's it going, Sean? Looks like you got some uh, red and black there. You're very uh, Targaryen-looking. Yeah. Uh, might be hard to see the detail, but these are intertwined, three intertwined dragons. Nice. Very appropriate. My shirt also a little yeah. hard to see, but I got Dragonstone on my shirt. Also, we've got similar colors. I got a little yellow in mine for the for the clouds and sun, but the red of the mountains. And I got you know, this plant dangling here in front of me to, to make it even harder to see my shirt. You know <laughs> whose shirt is hardest to see? Yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is it, though? I'm wearing a Game of Owns shirt. Nice. Shout out to nice. Game of Owns. 
Yeah, I am. I also have a cat in my lap under a blanket. Oh, very warm cat. Fire and cuddles? Yeah. <laughs> Fire and purrs? I don't know. We'll, we'll work on that. We'll workshop that one. Don't think there's no blood. <laughs> Cat's claws are sharp. They are, yes. Even when they're being cuddly, they cut you. And what about that drink? That is bright red, Sean. Yeah, I was going to say, I got a blood red drink here. It's, it's a little dil- diluted from ice, but it's just blood. Yeah, so it's fire. It's blood and ice. So fire and blood. Fire. You got blood and ice. Yeah, there you can hear the ice clinking. I, of course, just have coffee in a mug instead of a thermos, though. Woohoo! Very different. This is the Rainbow Machine naked drink. I mean, I also have like a Bang and a Mountain Dew and a sparkling ice mixed in there. But of course, the, of course, the... <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, of course, yes. Everyone is with you on that. Mm. <laughs> but the the Rainbow Machine uh, naked drink is thick blood red. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Shout out to our good friend Nina. Check her out at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. That's one L, one L in Alley. Two N's, though, in Alisan. <laughs> but it's Good Queen Alley. So there's no How many N's L's except in the Good and Queen? <laughs> None, actually. It's not Glued Queenal <laughs> Alley. <laughs> the latest blog post is regarding a question she received about. Catelyn and approving of Arya's interests in swords and horses. And the question is basically, if Arya had done well at courtesy and etiquette, would Catelyn have been more forgiving about her taking on, quote unquote, you know, man's tasks? Yeah, Arya was clearly into the patriarchy. She loved horses. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as she learned the patriarchy wasn't just about horses. She lost <laughs> like, Screw this. Lost interest. Yeah. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> so yeah, throughout this episode, we'll encounter topics that we've done full episodes on already, and we'll point them out as we go along. So at the end, we'll list some of those off, and you can check them out if you haven't already or have a long ago and are thinking of staying immersed in Westeros and the wonderful world of A Song of Ice and Fire, if you want more, we've got you covered. The list of episodes we have that are connected to these topics today, as I said last week, is long. A lot of O's in long, a couple of N's, maybe a couple of G's, yeah, all that. I wanted to make a, a quick note about your intro. Um, I'm, I mean, there's a lot of notes to make in there, and we'll <laughs> go on about it a lot, but but just uh, going back to something we talked about last week is that I think Aegon might have planned this better than it seems on the surface. Yeah. That, that, like you said, some of this coming at you straight on, it seems that way because he chose the moment when he was able to come at you straight on. That's true. Does that make sense? That is true. Like, and, and to be fair, he didn't come at everyone straight on, right? Yeah, I think that he knew he needed to go after Heron straight on. Mm-hmm. And it, by doing that, other people would count. They, they would be happy he did it, would realize that they couldn't beat him if Heron couldn't, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, uh, that, that I just want to give him a little bit more credit for not just being like, I'm stronger than you, bow to me. I, I think there, even though on the surface it seems like that, I think there was a lot of strategy behind the moments and that he chose and the order that he chose to of his battles. Yeah. I agree. It allowed yeah. for that superficial impression. It wasn't like his only move or that his ego drove him or pride to do that. It was calculated. Like, this is how right. a king should yeah. behave. I'm going to do fall, fall within these lines of what I think uh, the right attitude to project is. And he was, 
naturally pretty good at it on top of all that, I think. And that maybe is what makes it seem like it was just his only his only gear that happened to work. But no, I agree with you. I think there was a lot of method to that so-called madness. The Targaryen coin and flip, a... there's a lot of genius. And <laughs> yeah. this was a genius flip, not a madness flip that happened to work out. And that is another um, dynamic of war strategy, I guess, is it? there's a lot of value to winning overwhelmingly. Yes. Not only the stability that you get after the fact, but there's just less casualties. Good when point, you have a yeah. close pitch battle that stretches out for a long time, so many more people die. But when you win decisively, there's less casualties and there's less strife after the fact. And you're so. with that boss attitude as well, or if you intend to continue conquering after you know what stepping stones, you take one foe down, you move on to the next one. You want to add as many of their soldiers to your army as possible. So you also don't want to yeah. kill them all. You know, also don't want to kill a lot of them. But if it's a close-run thing, that's that tends to be the result when two sides are evenly matched. They have to wear each other down. But if one can just dominate the other one right away, then it's just over, and they and fewer things are destroyed. Like, and whether that's going to be used for future conquests or just people are still alive, that's a good thing in and of itself. Right. Even what you want to rule, like beyond just the, the winning of the battles at the initiation of the conquer, but the thing you conquer, you don't want to be ashes. You don't want to be a bunch of like orphans and people mad at you. You know, you'd rather it be a land that's still stable and intact that had minimal casualties that, that is thankful for you having gotten rid of the villain Heron or whoever, and is uh, trusting of your decisions to manage things well, because like you said too, his boss attitude wasn't total arrogance or or a bully, right? He, he, he wasn't just there to like, push everyone around he was there to unite the realm so that there would be peace and stability and yes. you know maybe he had some personal ulterior motives but whatever they were they didn't seem to be so he could rape all the women or take all the gold back to valeria or whatever else he seemed to just rule calculatedly well i'll say you know yeah. for an extended period of time so. to be fair a lot of these things fall off when we get to Dorne. Like, he did just kind of destroy it all because they didn't bend the knee. It, just, it was like, well, well if I'm going to destroy it, I have to destroy it. Now that, so he was willing to do that if it came to that, but it was definitely not plan A or probably even plan B. So there's definitely some negative aspects to that, um, but, you know, that's all part of the picture here. We'll be covering it all as we move forward. Let's, th- let's do our trivia question real quick. Who's the only person we know of to strike Aegon the Conqueror with a blade. Now, there are probably some other cases, uh, but we don't know them, or we don't know them by name. We know that there were assassination attempts, things like that, but there's only one that I could find where someone actually cut him. So, who was that that did that? Let's start with the claim. Claiming Westeros, that started with sending out a bunch of ravens. It's a status parallel. Sending out ravens to the entire realm, claiming to be king, only to be met with scorn to be fair stannis was met with more scorn than this though also to be fair we don't exactly know the level of scorn heaped on Aegon here either way here's the quote on the seventh day a cloud of ravens burst from the towers of dragonstone to bring lord Aegon's word to the seven kingdoms of westeros to the seven kings they flew to the citadel of old town to lords both great and small all carried the same message from this day forth there would be but one king in Westeros. Those who bent the knee to Aegon of House Targaryen would keep their lands and titles. Those who took up arms against him would be thrown down, humbled, and destroyed. 
Cue the little man from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, saying he ain't lying. Now, of course, it turns out that candidate that the, Dragon. That this little man was stand, stamping, uh, standing for turned out to be a white supremacist, a Ku KKK member. So we'll forget that part. But hey, these are the Targaryens, right? So hey, it kind of mm -hmm. works, right? But that is exactly what happened. <laughs> Those who took up arms against him were thrown down, humbled, and destroyed for the most part. There may be an exception or two. But, uh, yeah, that was... What a message to receive. You're like, imagine you're like the Lord of Casterly Rock, which is this time was Lauren the First Lannister, and later Lauren the Last, <laughs> because we know how that went. What do you do if you're him? You're like, this guy just claims to be king of us all now? You've been king of a line that's been in place for, like, 8,000 years. Who is this guy? Like, do you say he's king of all of us now? Like, they've all been squabbling... With each other, it's said that there's been there's hardly a year goes by where one kingdom doesn't fight another, and the kingdoms are largely have the same borders they've had for a long time. Like maybe here and there, border gets pushed inward a bit, but then maybe gets pushed back, and then a little way the other. Not large changes, other than what was happening in the Riverlands, which was pretty substantial. But that state of affairs had been going for hundreds of years too. So, what a thing to react to! It's hard to put yourself in those heads of, of these. Very proud, long, long-standing families. Like, the Gardeners even more so would have been prouder than the Lannisters. and Because their family is, like, perhaps the most celebrated family in Westeros. Maybe not even perhaps. Because of all the different families that believe their family traces to Garth Greenhand. And the Gardeners, like, at the top of that family tree. Them, most of all, perhaps, would be like, Pah, this is ridiculous. Of course we're not going what to... A, what a jerk. We're, we're not going to stand for this. Of course we'll face this man and set him back and, and show him what for <laughs> or whatever they whatever language they used so that would be Myrne the ninth who would be saying that and his family would be probably pumping him up like yeah that those that silly island targaryen guy what's he thinking you know this is this is a huge insult we'll show him you know you know from a from from several different angles i suppose even if someone did realize, if this guy's really coming after us with dragons, I don't think we can beat him. There, there were probably at least a few people that had that insight. Okay, maybe not the kings, but some people, yes. <laughs> yeah. And But they probably still knew the king can't just be like, all right, sure. You know, <laughs> They have to make a show of force. They have to at least superficially call the banners, say, who do you think you are, you know, that and Aegon probably realized that too. He yeah. probably knew they wouldn't just be like, okay, sure. You know, he knew that there would have to be some show of force, some battles, some blood's going to have to be shed. But but again, I, he and probably the wiser of the rulers wanted to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, I agree. I agree. For example, Torrin Stark, he did exactly what you said. He did bend the knee. Well, he mar he gathered his army and marched south first. And it was after he saw Harrenhal and was like, oh my god, look at that. He burned Harrenhal. It's melting, that thing. Like what, His lords and soldiers all saw that, too. So they had the visual evidence and that maybe would enable him to bend the knee with fewer people complaining about it, because they all saw what he saw, and were like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to fight that. That said, several people were still willing to fight that, as we're saying, but we'll get to that later. So... Instead of the little man from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, we have Lord Monkeyface to utter the line in Westeros. Lord Monkeyface is not a little person. He is hirsute and hunchback, though, a, a court fool, Visenya's fool. Eh, not little, as far as we know. Um, <laughs> called Lord Monkeyface because of 
all his hairiness, I think. And uh, maybe a little more about Lord Monkeyface later. That's, uh, again, Visenya's. And we're not sure when Lord Monkeyface died, but sometime before Visenya. <laughs> so that's all we know. Visenya lives for quite a while after this. The Seven Kings weren't, of course, all kings. There was King Ronald Aaron, but Ronald was a boy, so effectively in charge was Queen Regent Shara Aaron, Princess M Maria Martell, the Yellow Toad, also not a king, but the equivalent of a king, King Lauren Lannister, we said, Lauren I, King Murren IX Gardener, King Heron Hor the Black, King Torrin Stark, the king who knelt, and King Argilac Durndon. Now, King Argilac, surely one of those who was like, I'm not bending the knee. Like, you don't get a name like Arrogant for and mm -hmm. just bend the knee without a fight. This guy went down swinging as much as anyone. <laughs> but, again, we're not quite there yet. Even he, though, going down swinging, prideful and arrogant as he may have been, didn't ruin his troops. He didn't ruin his That's land. True. He didn't send everyone else into the suicide mission. That's true. One... Unsurprisingly, no, as Sean said, no one actually bent the knee. Some definitely held back, though. Not everyone rushed to fight him. It was not like they were all eager to get him. They may have wanted to get him, but they weren't eager to do it for obvious reasons. It, Just to clarify, no one immediately bent the knee. Right. No one immediately <laughs> bent the <Yeah>. knee. <laughs> Other than, I suppose, his existing vassals, but they were already his existing vassals. They had already bent the knee. Now they were rebending the knee to a king instead of a lord. Not a big difference, given it's the same person. Although, a big difference in terms of what they were about to be asked to do. Like, oh boy, here we go. Valarian and Celtigar and all them are like, here we go. Now, one famous and important example of holding back entirely and not fighting at all is the High Septon, and thus Lord Manfred Hightower the Lord of the Hightower at the time, something we cover in our Under the Dragons episodes there uh, for House Hightower. So that's a pretty big deal to have the High Septon say, let's not do that, uh, which immediately pulled a lot of troops back from, well, from death, because they probably would have just been burned on the field of fire. I don't think they would have made any difference. So it was a good thing the High Septon did, whether it was... Uh, truly a vision or just something he played off to, for maximum effect, which I definitely lean towards that because it was exactly seven days and it just so convenient. Everything was very convenient about it. But uh, it's the good kind of convenient. This is not the kind of politicking I'm cynical about. I'm like, yes, this guy used politics to save lives. Good for him. <laughs> um, he may have been thinking of his own life, but he certainly did it in a way that saved a lot of people's lives. And Lord Manfred Hightower as well. Uh, on the other hand, there was an exception to them not working together. That's an interesting point here is that if they wanted to take on Aegon, well, why didn't they team up? Why didn't they gang up on him? Why didn't they work together to fight him? Well, in part because they had rarely done so in the past. They don't get along very well. They don't have strong relationships. They don't probably talk that often anyway. So it, they're very proud people. It's hard for them to work together. How do they even meet? Where do they even meet? <laughs> like where's a neutral center central location for them to meet and if they do that are they risking some sort of attack by gathering in a place where someone could could get them all at once but one and how long would it take to get there and how long would it take to get yeah back? how much time and do they have yeah with the, with the agreement made while they were there still be in place given all the other changing factors by the time they got back so, yeah. so on the other hand there was an exception to them not working together 
There were a few offers to work with Aegon. We'll get to those in a minute. King Myrne rode to meet with King Lawrence. So they had a meeting, apparently, in Castle Rock. So that's a, that's a safe place to have a meeting. <laughs> Castle Rock, one of the safest places there is. Well, at least if you're a Lannister. Although, there's exceptions to that, too. Like, if you're a Casterly and Land the Clever's coming for you. But hey. King Myrn and King Lauren clearly had a discussion that eventually led to them uniting their armies. Which battle is still a ways away. It's a big old meta point, though, isn't it? The fact that they couldn't unite against a common enemy is a reason why Westeros needed to be united. If Aegon's dream was driving him at all here, it's just driving that point home. Like, when winter comes, look at these people. They just fight each other. You know, like, that's not going to work in the long term. you got to be united for the real threatening common enemy. If you can't unite now, you won't unite later. So this is a way that he can justify it. Uh, that's the argument anyway. The conquest is justified because it unites the realm for the coming darkness, and it created so much peace before that. Like, Fewer lives are lost per year after the conquest than before, I think, by a lot. So it's one of those things where sometimes, you know, if you prefer peace in the real world, it's like, well, there are times like this where strength creates peace. Uh, but people die in, to set that up, and that's where the moral conundrums come in. Like, why do some people have to die for other people's peace, you know? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Big ethical... There's other... Uh... Yeah, too deep for us to get into problem, but probably. But there's other sacrifices to be made, right? To yeah. for the sake of peace, you might sacrifice independence and liberty and uh, tax money and so on else, you know. Yes. And if we're being fair, to date, who's wrought more destruction on the Seven Kingdoms, dragons or the others? Probably dragons, <laughs> almost yeah, certainly dragons. Yeah. <laughs> but give it time. <laughs> give it time. We'll see. We'll we'll revisit that question at the end of it all. It still might be dragons, especially if you could include metaphorical dragons like the Targaryens. But that's a conversation for later. Very good question though to think about. Put that in the back of your mind. Marinate on it for a minute or or a longer time. And Nina adds, it's not like the various native rulers of Westeros were all evil, oppressive overlords who enjoyed making people suffer. Heron Hor being an, ex uh, an, uh, an exception to that rule. He definitely made people suffer. I don't know if he enjoyed it, but he definitely did it. So it doesn't really matter if he enjoyed it or not. Uh, if presented the choice, would they have refused to fight the others if they had actually come? Would these lords have just refused to unite against that common enemy if it was actually presented to them? We don't know. We'll probably find that out in A Song of Ice and Fire, because some of them probably won't, but a lot of them probably will. And it'll be really interesting to see where those ships fall. Here's the thing. Even if they did agree to work together because this real threat was coming, wouldn't it be nice to have already been working together, <laughs> yeah, to already have that. a structure in place <laughs> and a system of chain of command and everything else? Even if they did, at the last minute, realize they need to work together, it might be too late because they don't have enough organization mm. and trust and everything else. That's a good point. Yeah. If they, Westeros, and Nina also adds, hey, whatever might happen in the future, Westeros did unite back in the day during the long night to repel the others. Now, maybe not everyone was on board. We don't know, but it was enough. Whatever happened, humanity, enough people fought the others during the long night to be successful. So there was some united well, there was some unity. There was no united government that we know of. No, whatever united them all is, is it Azor High? Is it Brandon the Builder? Who We don't know. Is it some other person, some figure that's referred to as under one of those names? It was actually some different individual. We don't know. But there doesn't appear to have been some person that became king of everyone to lead this effort. It seems to have been a 
united group, perhaps individuals in the heat of the moment pulled people together and emerged as leaders among these disparate organizations and kingdoms. But yeah, there wasn't one central leader that we know of. I mean, maybe Azor Ahai was exactly that, but I don't think he was like the king of Westeros temporarily. There's no, the legends don't really speak to that. So, or, or she maybe. <laughs> even, even so it, it may be that there was an amount of unity, but it still also might be that some magical force defeated the others that made the unity irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. You know? That's a good point. Yes. That's a very good point. If there was, and maybe that magical force isn't around anymore. Mm. That sword is lost. The dragons are dead on and on. So we need the realm of men to come together unified. Otherwise you won't be able to defeat the others like we did before. Cause we don't have that same magic power. Good said Sean, because we can't be assuming all the same pieces are in place. There's a lot of differences. You know, George isn't doing a one-to-one relationship here. He's he's giving us similarities, not exact history repeating itself. When history repeats itself, it's it's not meant to be an exact repetition, although I guess sometimes it's pretty darn close. But generally, it's more of like similar, similar patterns. Like fashion is cyclical, but even when something comes back that has been out for 20 years, it's not exactly the same as it was in the 2000s as it is in 2023, you know? There's some modernization added to it, a little tweaks here and there. Same goes for much larger scale things like war against an implacable icy enemy. So there were people, even though they didn't bend the knee, there were like, well, let's negotiate. I'm not going to bend the knee, but we could be allies, right? Of course, Aegon would say no to this, but the offers came. So let's let's look about look at that briefly. We talked about last week the marriage offers. There were several offers to be Aegon's third wife. So some of those actually haven't happened yet, but we don't need to review those a second time. This is an example of this, of the alliances. Princess Maria offers to help fight Argerlac the Arrogant. She's like, well, I'll team up with you against him. <laughs> Not, I won't bend the knee to you, but I'm glad to do a pincer move. He's between us. And Queen Regent Shara, in addition to her offer of marrying Aegon, she also offers to team up against King Heron. Same thing. Sandwich move. The Vale to the north, Dragonstone to the south. They've got King Heron kind of in a pincer there. But of course, he's not like that. He's not up to that either. He's like, no, I'm not. Meh. No equals here. Plenty were willing to be equals. Plenty were willing to see him as equals, which to them might be like they're making a concession. Like, he's not a king. I'm a king. Who's he? You know, me offering an equal alliance with him, he should be satisfied with that because I'm already a higher rank. I've got a whole kingdom. My family's been here for thousands of years in place of this. He has hardly any troops. Who the heck is he? So some of them were like, well, he does have the dragons and the Valarian. So, yeah, we'll treat we'll, we'll give him this equality in negotiations. Uh, and, and, and Heron sucks. Yeah. Uh, we have this common enemy. That's you know. right. So there's all these factors that would lead them to think, okay, well, we've got some negotiating wiggle room here. Let's let's try to... We understand him presenting himself this way. This is probably what we would do. We would probably puff ourselves up. Maybe he's asking for a lot and willing to accept less. He wasn't, but it's a reasonable way to interpret his message, I think. Nina says that this... And it's... Go ahead. Just... We've said this before. We'll probably say it again, but... When they offer to team up, and he's like, no, I can do it myself. And then he does it himself. And, 
And then he turns to the, now you're next. You know, like uh, I should have teamed up. Know. I should have bent the knee, maybe. <laughs> now they can't say that out loud. You know, like as you yeah. said, they have to project strength and pride. They can't act weak in front of their vassals, but inside they're like, "Damn, I chose wrong, didn't I?" <laughs> <laughs> so Nina's yeah. Nina says it's a sign that at this early stage, the established dynasties of Westeros were treating the Targaryens as no more than new players in what Stephen Atwell, shout out to Race for the Iron Throne, by the way, calls the great game. That is the scramble for power and dominion in pre-conquest Westeros. Remember that this was not the first time a Westeros king had tried to create a large empire on the continent. The Gardner Kingdom under Giles III stretched from Red Lake in the north to Sun House in the south and from the Shield Islands in the west to the Narrow Sea and possibly even Tarth in the east. So that's huge. I mean, that's like most of southern Westeros minus Dorne, but a lot and a lot of the northern part of the continent, not the north, but the northern part of the area south of the north. Worth noting that the southern part of the continent is like the relevant part of the continent, like the, <laughs> the fertile land, the higher population. You know, yeah. it's, it's when you, you if you divide the land up in the north and south. If you could choose which one you want to be <laughs> the ruler of, you choose the South. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And another example Nina gives us is Arlen III, uh, Durandon Kingdoms, one of the Storm Kings. His re- re- uh, kingdom stretched from the Neck in the north through the Dornish marches in the south, and from Ironman's Bay all the way to the west of the Narrow Sea in the east. All the way west of the Narrow Sea in the east, rather. But the central rule of the Great Game was that no one could win permanently. Great game is capitalized, by the way. <laughs> Just as the Gardner Kingdom was eventually hacked away by various kings in the West, Riverlands and Dorne, you couldn't defend it all, and the other kings took advantage of the size of this new realm to take advantage of the fact that you can't defend all that. Like, you can't be everywhere at once. You can't have border defenses everywhere. It's too large of a border. There's not a lot of natural defenses there, which is why the borders often reset to their sort of quote-unquote natural ones, because those borders are... Somewhat reinforced by geography. So once you move beyond the geography, you no longer rely on those natural defenses. You have to use manpower. And the larger your realm gets, the more manpower you need to defend that against these other kings and queens who are quite capable of carving those chunks back off and maybe taking some of yours uh, in the process. So there's several examples here of large kingdoms that just didn't hold. And that might be what some of these kings saw they'd be like okay well maybe Aegon will be able to carve off a lot of this chunk but he'll never be able to hold it all especially not the whole kingdom no one's ever done that no one's even come close to that even these large kingdoms that we've described at most were 60 percent i don't even think that I, i'm not sure anyone ever ruled more than half the kingdom at once it's, they'd have to do a little math and, and de- detail gathering on that one but let's just call it roughly that and so someone this guy's going for all of it yeah that, that's it just goes to show what a boss move it is to say, I don't have equals, nor do I require help. And I'm doing something no one's even come close to doing before or even tried, really. So you can understand why there was a lot of just, bah, there's no way. I don't care how big that dragon is. It's just not happening. It just seems so ridiculous. 8,000 years like this. And you, know, you could say that, well, the kingdoms have been getting smaller and smaller i mean the number of kingdoms has gotten smaller and smaller maybe eventually historically speaking it just makes sense that it would all come into one but this is pretty quick <laughs> it maybe would have taken more of a gradual scenario than just all at once all seven of them united but hey uh this was a different kind of leader there's a lot of establishment of symbols here 
There's this the crown that he's eventually going to have when he lands. So that's a pretty big deal. And the sword Blackfire is a bit of a symbol, much more of a symbol later. But for now, it's more about the dragons. And I guess the biggest one is they unfurled that big dragon banner. There's a quote for that later, I think we have. But the point is that they weren't doing Westerosi cultural things. Like, apparently, Aegon was the first, Aegon the first, was the first of his family to have a Andal-oriented banner with words and a house motto and all that. Like, the Targaryens apparently just didn't do that for the first 90 years on Dragonstone or however long it was. So this was part of adopting the culture that they were planning to rule. Not only does he adopt the Seven, but he adopts this particular cultural tradition. Probably several others as well. Maybe, you know, things like knighthood and other things. I'm not sure how much they had embraced that. Certainly a lot of their followers would have been knighted. But Aegon himself, I don't think, was ever knighted. A lot of his descendants would be. But I doubt any of his forebears were. So that's another thing that, that as part of the setup, he did that. Now, th- so when we talk about him planning the conquest, these are the kind of plans he made. It's not about his troops as much or making sure they have the right weaponry. I mean, I'm sure there was some of that going on, but his troops were such a small aspect to this. He had so few of them at this point. It's like Stannis again. That's another why it fits with Stannis so well. Stannis, when he's going north to the wall, he's only got like 1,500 men left. It's probably about how many Aegon has here. Except he's not going north. He's going to the mouth of the Blackwater. So there's a lot of these cultural preparation. Adopting the Seven. Adopting Knighthood. Adopting a banner. Adopting house words. I guess that was probably an easy one. What are we going to do for our house words? Fire and blood, man. That's easy. Like, oh yeah, that is easy. All right. Fire and blood. Cool. (laughs) It does kind of fit naturally, I think. And it may have been enhanced by dreams or not necessarily even dreams about the others. just. A lot of Targaryens have had dreams described that way, I think. It's fiery, bloody dreams. Seems common. Maybe more fire than blood, but (laughs) still a lot of both. Coming out of the doom, too, would maybe echoes of that in their their history. So I want to emphasize a bit just how proud of themselves all these kingdoms were. These kings and kingdoms and their families that support that. They're very full of themselves and... They'd outlasted so many others, so many of these other, on one you could look back at how it had become seven kingdoms and say, it used to be a hundred kingdoms, it used to be a thousand kingdoms, and our family emerged at the top of that heap after all this fog of history and violence, we're standing tall in a land where so many have died trying. So you know, that's another, from what you were saying before, Sean, of course they're just not going to give up on that. It's one thing to be proud of your ancestry. It's another to fool yourself into thinking that you're responsible, as in responsible for creating any of that. You inherited it, and maybe you've managed it well, but you didn't You didn't build it, right? To be fair, each successive generation has a larger history to protect. Their legacy gets larger and, and more something to be more proud of. And their society puts a lot of pressure on them to protect that and preserve that. So, yeah, it's a very deep held cultural belief one that they would not let go of too easily 
you could say as much pride as there is, there's also a sense of responsibility, ostensibly, with a good leader, you know? Yes, definitely. And that's not a bad thing. You know, well, no, this guy wants to come conquer us? No, of course. I'm. It's my job to defend us from that. I'm going to do it. So, yeah, it, it's not like a bad thing that they didn't bend the knee. If they knew about the supernatural future, that's maybe, but there's no way they could know that. There's no way to even convince them of that. Like, why would they believe this crazy guy talking about, like, in a couple hundred years or so, there's going to be, <laughs> it's like, so we all need to prepare now, you know, like, so your grandchildren's 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 grandchildren will be prepared for it. Like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> like, in, in modern times, how much do we do to prepare for 200 years from now? Not a lot. Right? Yeah. Like, we have way more knowledge and access to knowledge. We have way better infrastructure, ostensibly better leaders. I don't know. And yet still, we are not thinking past nope. maybe two generations. You know? We are not. You're right. And uh, some people do, but they don't really, they don't, they can't convince the rest of us to, to go along with yeah. it. And there is a greater emphasis on that in society these days, but not maybe, maybe not much greater progress in terms of actually doing that. Because it's not something like, without technology, you wouldn't have thought of thinking ahead that far in ancient times. Like, why would you? What what, what reason would you have? You're not thinking about like, oh, look at de look, look at what deforestation will cause. I don't know if the ancients would have realized that. Maybe they would have, and maybe they, they weren't would. able to deforest as fast. They, yeah, right? <laughs> for one, they didn't and, know uh, the consequences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, ooh, that, we shouldn't have done that. But they may not have even known and, what. <laughs> and when you have less resources. It makes more sense to worry about your children, yourself first, your children next. You know, when you start to get more and more resources, then you worry about your neighbors and your grandchildren. You know, Good point. And so, people of Westeros, compared to you know, people, most people in the modern world have way more wealth and stability. Food, you're not as worried about food. Yeah, that's but back point. then, most of the hours of most of the people is spent trying to not starve. That's the main endeavor of everyone's life is to just create food. So. What do you it makes sense that they're not all worried about something 200 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like the, the present is demanding enough. Like, who's going to worry yeah, about the future? They're worrying about the harvest in a couple months. Yeah. That's, that's what dominates their lives. Yeah, there's really... You can't look ahead when the present is that demanding, I think. Yeah. So, what do you think, Sean? Do you think Aegon expected any of them to bend the knee? Or do you think his re their reaction was pretty much what he expects? Like, yeah, none of them are actually going to bend the knee. But I need to make claim and, and start off this way and, and set that target and prove that I can hit it. Yeah, I think that he expected them to bend the knee after a couple battles. After okay. he made it clear, look, you can't beat me, sorry. Um, and, and not only can you not beat me, but I'm not that bad also. I think that was part of it too. He wasn't he wasn't just ruthlessly, unnecessarily slaughtering people, right? Right, right. He, he wasn't just burning down random villages. He was only doing it in battle, and he started with the worst leader. So I think that, I think he, I, I'm confident that he did expect at least some of them to bend the knee after the first couple were conquered. I think he might have expected or hoped for, and, and might've gotten, we don't necessarily know it, some negotiation. He might've got a few people say like, look, you know, I can't just randomly bend the knee, but if you show up with 5,000 troops and two dragons, I'll, I'll make a show of force. And then my people will see I'm being reasonable by bending the knee to you. you know, yeah. I, I think that he might've expected or hoped or even gotten that. It's a chance for them to show their bravery, in a sense. It's almost like, well, if I can survive this battle, I'll look really brave. I'll look like I did my duty. But ultimately, I I plan to surrender. We just have to... We can't surrender before there's in any fighting. And then I'm, I'm going to look like yeah. a coward. And that, you know, and that's just one of the worst things you can look like in Westeros when you're in charge. And and that's even better for Aegon, too. If, if He doesn't want cowards person, following him. Right. If the person <laughs> that bends the knee to him 
he then puts them in charge of the land that they're already in charge of. They should do a decent job, right? Yeah. But if that person now looks like a coward to his people, huh, it won't be stable. That yeah. would be a problem for Aegon. So he wants them to be able to still look good at the end of the battle or the knee bending or whatever happens. Yeah, he wants them to still look good because they'll look good under him rather than, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's his. he's only as good as his subordinates. So that's, that's a great point as well, Sean, because, yeah, he, he doesn't want to be surrounded by weaklings and the strong people come along later and go, he only conquered the realm because everyone bent the knee. Like, no one ever gave him a fight. Let's give him a fight and see what happens. But Aegon was was determined to make sure that if there were fights, he won them handily so that people would be like, well, like not even, like even in a scenario like that where, you know, someone you know, thinks that their ruler is a coward and we could have beat the Targaryens and so there is a civil war and Aegon can go and burn them all down with the dragons. But then what? That's not, it's just so much worse. Yeah. Right? It it's is. so much worse to have that, the destruction that Civil War would cause, the, the destruction that he will have to commit to stop the Civil War. And then what happens now? Who's in charge? Like the, the people who were in charge before that you could trust to run it, they're all dead. Yeah. The, the, the next strongest, bravest people who are trying to fight them, well, they're all dead. So now you got to <laughs> pick someone, and, and you're, it'll yep. be this constant issue. You know, so. Yeah, good said, good said. So uh, as far as the dragons, too, we, I know we touched on this briefly last time, but Nina added a point here. The dragons aren't an automatic win button, and uh, especially from the perspective of these kings and queens who haven't seen them in action. They don't know exactly what they're capable of. So you have to put that to the test. For all they know, the dragons won't go where you want them to. For all you know, the dragons will turn on their own troops sometimes. Now, that's not what will happen. But they don't know that. Like, can they really control them that well? There's things they can say to themselves to maybe pump themselves up. And this goes for the lords and the common men. Once the dragons are in action and once it's been seen what they can do, especially Balerion, that's when people start to go, okay, we've, you've proven what they can do. It's more than we thought. Now we'll definitely consider bending the knee. Like Torin. That's, that's pretty much exactly the case of Torin. Dragons are useful and powerful tools, no question. But they don't replace strategy, so I have to use them properly. And as we said, there's a little something to be said about Balerion's enormous size that may have given Aegon a weapon that no one else before him really had. It's entirely possible Balerion was the largest dragon in the history of House Targaryen. Uh, maybe one of the largest seen in would have been one of the largest seen in uh, Valyria. And here's a th- here's a point from our episode in Balerion that I want to remind you all of. I think I've maybe said it a couple times before, but it bears repeating here. Vagar, Meraxes, and Valerian are named after Valerian gods. Vagar and Meraxes were named after Valerian gods after all the dragons were wiped out. So that's, like, it's not as, you're not naming one, you're not elevating one dragon to the status of a god name when there's hundreds of them. Right? But Balerion was. Balerion was born in Valyria when there were hundreds of dragons and got the name of a Valyrian god. How many dragons got the name of Valyrian gods when there were hundreds of them? How many Valyrian gods are there? Were there like dozens of dragons named Balerion? Were there lots of other Vagars and Meraxes? Fido. <laughs> Fidax. It's F Y D O. Yeah. <laughs> the X is silent. Yeah. <laughs> so that says something. Like I don't know how they knew. I mean, okay, let me use our black cat, Jaken, as an example. Because when we saw this kitten, it was clear this kitten would be huge as a cat. He already had huge paws. He already had huge ears, huge whiskers. Like 
he was going to grow into that. So I wonder if it was a little bit like this with Balerion. This dragon hatched, and like, that is a huge hatchling. That's a fat baby. You know, the equivalent of that for a human. <laughs> and indeed, turned into an enormously, unusually enormously large dragon. And that might have been... I always think that's a big part of the calculus here that's maybe kind of underrated. Just the, the pure size of Balerion changed the calculus of everything. And another thing Nina adds is the dragons have been sitting there for a century. You know, if they could have conquered. You now we've we've come up with lots of reasons why they wouldn't conquer. And there's plenty, right? But it's not the same logic that these kings and queens might use when considering that same question. They'd be like, well, if they could have done it before, why didn't they? It's just a reason for them to pump up their pride. Especially because they're not going to back... They know they're not going to back down. They know they have to put this to the test. So they may as well pump themselves up with some reasoning to be like, well, wh why might this go well? Well, yeah, maybe they don't, uh, maybe those, uh, they're, they're bluffing a bit. So they would maybe be able to talk themselves into some things, knowing that they're going to be doing it anyway. It's one thing to convince yourself of something that's not true before you've decided what to do. But if you're already convinced you're going into this fight, there's nothing wrong with some false bravado you know it's like that slim charles line from the wire that i've quoted before if we're gonna fight fight on that lie don't break their morale by telling them that the reason they're fighting is a lie go ahead and let that inspire them if you're gonna fight anyway it doesn't matter <laughs> inspiration it's is better to not fight but if you're going to yes. at least keep morale up yes right yes don't undermine your troops on with with truth <laughs> 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 there's a time for everything right i mean that's a, that's a truth that's a real thing right we've used that example before you just go around telling kids that certain beings don't i won't name it by <laughs> certain holiday individuals don't actually exist right that's <laughs> not cool <laughs> So, yeah, it's just an extension of that, in a, in a way. <laughs> Shana thinks it's very cool. Magor the cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing you're muted for that statement. <laughs> Shana said she likes ruining children's days? Really? Oh, for shame. <laughs> So, d despite how dominant Balerion would prove to be, not to mention Vagar and Meraxes, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to attack all the Seven Kingdoms at the same time. So he had the choice of who to target first, and it seems like he went with prison rules of sorts. What I'm referring to is relating to the idea of demonstrating the power of the dragons. You go fight the strongest person, and then no one messes with you, because you've already... If you're not the weakest person in the room, you won't be the first one picked on. It's like it's like the old rules of poker. If you can't spot the sucker at the table, it's probably you. <laughs> so, by that same logic, it makes m more sense to target the biggest bully, assuming you have the ability to actually pull it off. Because if you fail, then, well, that kind of backfired, didn't it? So here we go. Quote... North of the Blackwater, the Riverlands were ruled by the bloody hand of Heron the Black of House Hor, king of the Isles and the Rivers. Heron's ironborn grandsire, Harwin Hardhand, had taken the trident from Argalac's grandsire, Eric, whose own forebears had thrown down the last of the River Kings centuries earlier. Heron's father had extended his domains east to Duskendale and Rosby. Heron himself had devoted most of his long reign, close on forty years, to building a gigantic castle beside the god's eye. But with Heron Hall at last nearing completion, the ironborn 
would soon be free to seek fresh conquests. No king in Westeros was more feared than Black Heron, whose cruelty had become legendary all through the Seven Kingdoms. Shan's going to pull up a map here to remind us just how large Heron's kingdom was. He basically controlled the entire center of Westeros, all the way from roughly where, not exactly where King's Landing is, but Maidenpool, all the Riverlands. And Maiden, where the Riverlands ends is a little spotty, but it's roughly a little past Maidenpool to the east. But everything northwest of that, all the way to the Iron Islands. So what you're looking at is... How does anyone trade with the Vale or the North when the Riverlands is controlled by this guy? Well, he would probably tax that stuff pretty heavily. So it's another example of his bullying, like economic bullying or dominance that may go unnoticed by a lot of readers or analysts. So this would be not just as breaking Heron would not just end his threat, which is substantial, but it would open up a lot of trade and... Com commercial ventures for folks who would have been stymied and the riverlands is known for trade i mean the the rivers themselves create a lot of opportunity for boats going back and forth rapidly into a lot of different places somewhat remote to somewhat central so it's a very good place for that but it's been dominated by a tyrant who rather than build on that natural prosperity he exploits it to build this giant awful castle that involves basically enslaving people working them to death stripping lots of regions of their natural resources kind of the maybe the equivalent of like strip mining and deforesting including cutting down werewoods which you know wouldn't bother the followers of the seven all that much but might make a few people nervous about what the old gods might do might some superstitions linger a lot of people still respect the old gods even if their main prayer is to the new gods that's why they say that the new god old gods of the new that people still say that phrase because it still matters even if you're christian or jewish or whatever you don't want all the old greek pantheons destroyed because <laughs> they're not your religion yeah. you know if, if someone just starts wreaking havoc on on ancient sacred ground everyone's a little aghast, even if you're not yeah. specifically connected to it. You know that so means a lot to someone. Kind of idea. Yeah, yeah, or the first right. day, yeah, yeah, first day came for the their religious landmarks, next they'll come for ours. Yeah, yeah it's a, it, it's not hard to, to make connect that thought. I totally agree. So, given the size of Heron's castle and of his realm and how unpopular he was, the religious aspects as well, I mean, he's foisting the Iron, the Drowned God religion here. He's not a worshiper of the Seven. He's not like a very religious guy, but certainly wasn't following the Seven. So that's a problem. Yet another reason why Aegon adopting the Seven was a really smooth political move. Not only is it the dominant majority religion, but it was very opposed to what Heron was doing. So it just really fits in line with this plan of attacking Heron first. To adopt the religion of people that really hate this guy. Much easier to recruit them. Much easier to win them over. Yeah. Taking down a tyrant. People will sign up for that. Including people within his own realm. And I bet he predicted that. So this issue of timing is very interesting. Legend tells us that Aegon's landing occurred on the same day that Heron Hall was declared complete. I don't know if it was the exact same day. That seems like a little bit of, you know, just storytelling. Adding to the myth. Yeah, yeah. a little, little myth-making there. But it's cool. The point being, though, it was pretty close together, which that's enough to make the point. It doesn't have to be the exact same day for it to be 
By the way, I can't believe it's the same day because once again, I think that I think Aegon had a lot of logistical planning behind us. Mm. I think he understood the. He may have spied on them to find uh, out what day it was going to be over, declared done. Just like, yeah, yeah, it would have been it would have been a big event. He's like celebrating the day the castle was completed. And Aegon could have known about that. Stealing his thunder. I like that. That's a great call. Yeah. It, again, like I think that he understands the symbolic nature mm-hmm. of, of what, what he's doing and his actions, going after Heron first in the first place. I think that I, I and I don't think it would have been like some secret that no one could possibly know. I, I the, the more I think about it, the, the yeah. more I think it probably was. It probably was calculated specifically for that day. I like it. Yeah, I was a little skeptical, but you guys have made some really good points there. I think I might have to change my mind because of the symbolic relevance of it. If, if he thought of that, it seems like he probably would have, then he would plan for that, and it makes a lot of sense. It's like putting starting a holiday on an existing holiday to kind of erase it, which has happened yeah. before. <laughs> like, when you think about it, he probably could have done whatever he's doing two weeks, two months sooner. Yeah, two months later, but he chose this day. I think he chose this day very specifically. Yeah, I think you guys are right about that. And if he, yeah, because if he started a few days early, like it wouldn't matter. It's like Heron Hall. It's like, oh no, Heron Hall's complete now. Now Balerion can't melt it. You know, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, oh, you missed your chance. <laughs> it's like Star Wars. That thing's operational. You know, like it was still very effective as a castle before that final brick was put in. It's like, oh, now it all yeah. works. You know, now it's <laughs> turned the whole castle on. Now, like the switch works. You know, Heron Hall isn't firing the big blast of super hot. Plasma, though. That's Balerion. The castle isn't the Death Star. Balerion's the Death Star, right? So these are things that, like you said, Aegon and his brain trust would have figured out and, and realized the value of, of stealing his thunder. And Heron, I wonder what he knew. Like, we can see that Aegon was probably keeping track of what was going on. Was, it, was Heron keeping track of Aegon? I don't know, probably not. He's probably too arrogant for that. Probably didn't think they mattered. Yeah. What what's that little island... What do I care about that one island? One day they'll be mine, you know, or my just my sons will rule them someday. That's probably more on lines of him, his thinking. He probably was that arrogant. <laughs> Not it's uh, certainly his, his later and earlier actions do imply that. As arrogant as uh, Argilac, perhaps uh, Har uh, <laughs> and Hor needed to. Uh, they should have fought over that nickname. No, I'm more arrogant. <laughs> no, I'm more arrogant. <laughs> Maybe he did some common sense things like buy a few more crossbows but they didn't know like truly how to fight dragons you know maybe if there was a way to like if he had some valyrian text that showed what dragons did to each other maybe but scorpions that's what they needed were the scorpions and the the big bolt throwers but i don't know if he knew about that if he did even that might have just like slowed it down a little Aegon has to be a little more careful but he doesn't win the battle no and as we saw he he when he does attack which we'll get to later he does it at night when it's really hard to find your shoot him like where is he you know it's dark (laughs) you only ever see it when the fire starts shooting out of his mouth and then it's like well where exactly is he in that you know and yeah just Nina says there's also a point we make here about timing with respect to both ideology and power. If Aegon really did decide to invade just at the moment Hall was completed, then he was attacking Hor at the point where both native Riverlands' resentment against the Horrors was at its peak, while native Riverlands' power and resources were at their nadir. Also, it goes to that strength thing. He's like, I'm not going to attack you before you're ready. I'm going to wait till you're ready and then knock you down so everyone knows that, you know, you were ready for me and I still beat you. Your castle was done. You declared it so. And I still beat you. And I still melted it, you know? <laughs> like, all that preparation. So, yeah. 
Nina says Heron had effectively enslaved the native population of Riverlands to build a monument to his own absolute authority, the most crushing symbol of their lack of political identity in a system which considered them subhuman compared to the Ironborn. It's kind of hard to think of that. Like, the Ironborn are now, like, laughed at and thought of as a backwards people. But at this point, they were at a, well, this was a high point at this point. <laughs> and you couldn't look down on the Ironborn in the same way. You might look down on them culturally, but you couldn't look down on them as a power. Like, they are not a backwater, reduced to the Iron Islands situation here. They are arguably peaking. And people didn't know that this would be their peak. They thought it might go higher. Uh, they didn't know that Aegon would set the whole peak afire and melt it down to nothing. So, yeah, Riverland's resentment would have also been peaking. And Aegon was counting on that. And it. It worked. <laughs> at the same time, however, Riverland's resources were also at their most depleted, however. Because every year, he was demanding more and more. And it's not like it gets easier to find stone and trees when you're cutting down so many and killing so many people in the mines and, and overworking them to death. You start to run thin of these things. So, the Riverlands was weak. That's the thing. Military investments... It could be complicated, but but as a default, a military investment, it doesn't produce new stuff. Yeah. Right? Like if you tax the people and and you know enslave the population in order to build more farms, well, after that, you have more of food. And you know, maybe that's not the best way to do it, but something got produced. But if you enslave the people and pillage the land to build a big castle, okay, well, now you got a big castle. No one's fed because you have a big castle. There's not any extra wood that's generated for the people or anything, so Right on. Um, next up, let's talk about... Oops. Aegon wasn't ready to introduce the biggest bully in Westeros to Balerion, the biggest dragon in the world, just yet. He had the plan, but as we said, there were some things he had to do first. He announced a claim before a lot of the preparations were made, and that's probably in part because of what we just sort of sussed out with the fact that he wanted to time things for Heron's completion. And maybe that didn't give him enough time to do some of those other things first. Like, well, this is the, the date we're working around, so we got to get our claim forward and then start moving our troops and then all this other stuff. So let's take a few questions and then we'll come back with the beginning of the actual landing. Julie A, I wonder if Valerian was especially bred in Valyria or if he just had a super large egg. Oh, that's those are cool possibilities. You're muted. Muted, Shay. Thanks, Sean. Uh, and then there was a continuation of that where Dornish Dame um, added on to that and said, ooh, that dragon breeding idea is interesting, Aunt Julie A. Not something I'd thought of before, but if Valyrians were as advanced as we're told, surely they would have bred dragons as Westerosi do horses. Mm, so comparing yes. to horse breeding. And then um, Christina Kay replied and said, I have a headcanon that the Targaryens got to be noble by being like really good dragon breeders. Mm. Like a specialty, you know? Like, wow, well, yes. Just they weren't like a particular, they weren't like the most... Uh, respected of the of the valyrian houses so which makes it seem like they were more of a stewardly class more of like the tyrells mm. to the high towers kind of classes or maybe like the Cleganes, right? yeah or, or, the, or, or dog like the breeders. dog breeder kind yeah. of thing yes that that is a better comparison 
Um, something that wouldn't be thought of is is noble. Something you wouldn't be proud of. Something like common people do. But it might be unique and special enough, and they were good enough at it. You know, it's protected to, to, too. You the yeah. secrets you need to. There's yeah. a lot of secrets behind it. Whereas with horsemanship, I don't know if you're as worried about people finding out some things. You still would because you, you like horse superiority is a thing. And there's been plenty of yeah. times where armies, ancient armies, have clashed, and the superiority of horses has been the difference like one group's horses are way bigger and stronger and that makes a massive difference like we look at horses now war horses like look back in like early medieval times those horses were small people didn't fight from horseback they would ride to the battle then get off the horse and then fight because the horse wasn't really that well equipped for it they couldn't handle all this armor and and let alone a rider wearing armor and all this weaponry but it took a lot of breeding to get to that point yeah that's that's a really good point dragons may very well fall under the same umbrella it's also the type of thing, if you think about it a little, and there's you know, all kinds of research you can do on it, but there is a lot of difference in types of horses. Like some are bred to be bigger and stronger, to like haul more weight, but some are bred to be more nimble and and to get up and down like you know uh, mountains and cliffs and uneven terrain. Yeah. Some are built for endurance to travel a long, long yes. way, on and on. And so you know, uh, yeah, you can imagine uh, both in general, like. Uh, or in the real world or whatever, if you have some horses that are big and strong and they have these mounted knights on them coming forward with lances, but you're on, you know, uneven, rocking, rocky terrain with a river to cross and these other horses have just like bareback riders, you know, like on our Native Americans or something and they're quick and nimble and can cut really fast. They might just run circles around the heavy armored horses. But if they both had the same types of horses and one is trained for one thing and the other, anyway, it wouldn't work as well. You could easily see that with dragons. You could easily see some dragons you might want to fly a longer distance to have hotter breath, to be tougher skinned. You could see all these different traits that might be bred. And if the Targaryens made Balerion, right? <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, ooh, that one worked out really the well. Other, yeah, the other, uh, <laughs> the other houses might have been like, all right, fine, you can be noble, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're making better dragons than our dragons. So. <laughs> I do like the idea of, uh, besides the breeding, the really large egg. Those two ideas go together. If you're if you're raising your dragon well, then it might produce abnormally large eggs. Or maybe there's something you can do to the egg after it's laid to make it stronger. I know or, what you could yeah. do. What? Sit on it. <laughs> Sit on it. I've seen it in all those tales. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, maybe if they're incubated at a certain temperature for a certain time or, or within a certain magical realm you know a certain uh, vicinity to a certain mountaintop or whatever you have Damon Targaryen <laughs> singing to them perhaps yeah, you know yeah. I do think about things like the, the the singing and stuff like that and the things Damon was kind of looking into that he might just be tapping into his Targaryen roots that he doesn't realize <laughs> how much his family was really into that <laughs> Maybe he did read some random book that the Sarahs threw at him when they were nine yeah, years yeah. old or something, you know? <laughs> That's funny, yeah. Did I ever mention the example of the Comanche and the Apaches with re- with regard to horses? I don't think so. So shout out to the channel Dates and Dead Guys on YouTube, which is a, a name that fits so well with the Song of Ice and Fire naming mm-hmm. conventions. Because it reminds me of this horse discussion we're having with, that relates to dragons. In like the 1840s, so not that long ago... We're talking about horses and horse superiority mattering in ancient times. It mattered 180 years ago as well. It's not that long in the past. What happened with the United States Army still had horse cavalry in World War One? Yeah, World War One, riding into battle in World War One, and not just the U.S. Like the Germans had it too, I believe. Uh, Well, I point out the U.S. because we were 
relatively modern compared to the okay, other countries. Yeah. You know, like we had, you know, we, we were making airplanes and stuff like that, but still had horses. Yeah, and it's weird. So. They're shipping horses overseas to fight World War One when there's planes and battleships. Yeah, and guns. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We use planes and tanks also, yeah. but, but the point is horses were still a part of, you know, modern warfare 100 years ago, not ancient times. Yeah. So the... Example was that the Spanish, of course, for a long time, obviously controlled a lot of what's now the United States, and they brought over their super well-bred Mustang horses. At one point, a large number of Mustang horses were lost, and they were taken by uh, a group of Apache that became the Comanche, or maybe they were already the Comanche. I forget what happened, what that part of it, I'm, don't quote me on that part. But the Comanche became like the Ironborn slash Dothraki of that period because they were raiders. They were really good at it. They knew the terrain better than anyone. You would never chase after them because you would get counter ambushed. And you couldn't chase after them because their horses were faster. <laughs> so they would strike out of, out of nowhere and get away out of nowhere and you could never chase them. Uh, so that's like the nature of raiding. And this was because they had these Spanish-bred horses where the horses native to the U.S. and Well, there's no horses native to the U.S. The horses that had started over there were nothing like these exceptional, top-of-the-line European war horses that once the Comanche got a hold of them, their advantage was just overwhelming to all the other tribes in their area as well as to the, against the U.S. <laughs> when the U.S. came along and was fighting, they were like, damn, these, this tribe has incredible horses. Crap, where did they get these? And they're like, well, from the Spanish. That's where they got them. And you can, I wish I knew a little better, but I can imagine the Mustangs maybe were bred for maneuverability and quickness and not power and strength. And yeah. so a lot of the horses coming across from the east to the west were the big, strong ones hauling carts. Yeah. They're not yeah. fast and nimble. So. Well, the Comanche also knew a lot about horse breeding. By that time, they had learned horse because horses had been in America yeah. for a long time. So they took those horses and then trained them a little differently and bred them a little differently, a little more suited yeah. to their needs than what the Spanish is, but similar, but what you're saying is still true. Just they, they branched off into an all new direction for their own needs. A couple other notes here. Uh, Matt Reese points out a, a small error I made in my description of the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. It wasn't the Assyrians that the that Cyrus the Great overthrew. It was the Medes. The Assyrians had taken Babylon, the Medes took it from them, and then the Persians took it from the Medes. So ultimately, my example was, the point I got across was still accurate, but I want to be historically accurate. So thanks for the correction there, Matt Reese. Several people pointed out that we had a little feet yards goof last week. When you talked about the painted table being 50 foot long, you're like, that's half a football field. Like, no, that's 50 yards, <laughs> which is three times longer. So whoops. I feel similarly, though, that, that I might have been off on the detail of the you know, the yards versus feet, but it's still preposterous. A 50 foot table well, no, is also still crazy. No, it is still, it is extreme, but not crazy, not, not preposterous, preposterous because we certainly have people link us to examples in the Facebook group and whatnot of 50 feet, 40 feet tables that like there was, that yeah. are around today. But not 150 feet. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't necessarily need a not, soccer stadium yeah. to house them, but you still can't really. Again, think of the idea of like looking at the map. You're on one end of the table yeah. looking at Dorn. You cannot see the wall. You cannot even see King's Landing. It's too far away across the well, that's table. That's how he stayed fit. Okay, because he had to walk around the table. He that. Jog around the table. Jog yeah. around the table. Run all the way over here. It's like I'm out of breath running from over here. It's like check out over here. All right, hold on. Okay. Okay, look over here. <laughs> oh no, yeah, fifty feet, very possible, definitely unwieldy. 
impressive, all that, but possible for sure. 50 yards, as as I definitely also was imagining, not very possible. <laughs> very difficult. Christina Kay made a great point last week about how George uses mysteries. He, does, he presents them in a variety of ways. One of the ways he does it is that he doesn't make it, he doesn't tell us it's a mystery. Or he tells us it's a resolved mystery, but it isn't. It's falsely resolved, like the like the issue of maybe John's parentage, which a lot of people in the world think they have the answer. And the only reason, but we have to ask ourselves that it's, we have to realize it's a mystery. Because people in the book aren't sitting there wondering, who is John's dad? John isn't wondering, or mom. John's not, well, or both. John's not wondering that. Well, he is about his mom. But only at the beginning. He doesn't really think about it later. Maybe only once at most. So... But Nina expands on that idea. It's like, George does this a lot of different ways. That's one of them. But sometimes he does have the mask. Sometimes they're very deep in the mystery themselves, like John or like Ned trying to figure out who killed John Aaron or Ned trying to figure or uh, the the pink letters one that the fandom invented as a mystery. That isn't necessarily one that was intended to be. But that's just an, that works out as an example here, too. Just something that becomes a mystery because of the way we see it versus what people in world see it as. Uh, like the identity of young Griff. Tyrion does question it. Only a little bit, but he does question it. So that is an example of, like, if someone had sat there and go, I don't know about Jon, so I don't know, if, I don't think Ned's his dad. If someone had that thought, which no one has had, not even Ned, <laughs> not Jon, <laughs> then it, that mystery would be framed a lot differently. But so George is not going to that same playbook every time. He uses a variety of ways to frame mysteries, and that keeps us on our toes like well this pattern this is not the same pattern being followed here this is he's just really good at it <laughs> that's the bottom line <laughs> yeah sometimes the you know even in the real world even something that is known there is still a reason to question it right yes. maybe there's some bias involved or some piece that doesn't add up and and so that would happen in, in george's world too like even something that is factual there would still be some people that have reason to question it and so uh, that gives the audience a reason to question. And sometimes you question it, and, and the audience even can have a better perspective because we're reading different people's perspective. We can have knowledge that one character doesn't have another. But but the audience doesn't always have all the knowledge either, obviously. So that, like you said, there's a lot of different ways for him to come at us like, with these mysteries. Like another good example is who's the harpy? Like we're wondering who the harpy is, so are the characters. We're all kind of together on that, and we kind of have the same information. So, but that's completely different than the Jon Snow example for, you know, so that, yeah. that's, that's neat. Guinevere Greenstones asks, should we be reading Fire and Blood with Aegon's Dream in mind? Now, we, we briefly clarified this at the beginning of the first episode, but let's, let's clarify it further. I think yes, but I think it's a year mileage may vary thing. I think if you've already read Fire and Blood without it in mind, which you probably haven't, or probably have read it without it in mind, why not read it with it in mind this time? It'll feel a little different. It'll come off a little different. Most of the information is the same, but it'll be, it's a little different look at a book it's uh, that you've already read so i think it's fun to read it with that in mind you don't have to take it as canon because technically yes george has said it probably applies to the books well he didn't say it probably applies to the books the way he's framed it it almost certainly applies to the books but not necessarily the same way it applies to the show like his take on it might be different than the way we were presented in the show so there's definitely some wiggle room as to what george exactly intends for aegon's dream to have been we have to keep that in mind but personally, absolutely, yes, we're keeping it in mind. I think it's more fun to do that, but we have to keep be careful with reading too much into it and being and not taking the show too directly in its interpretation. Just as a the show is like a guideline for us, I think. It, this is 
you know, uh, another angle to take. Should you read a Game of Thrones with a Clash of King in mind? <laughs> like, if okay. you've read them all and you're rereading it, I think you should, yes. right? George didn't necessarily read, have yeah. everything and in, in that he ended up writing in A Dance of Dragons. He didn't have all that set in his brain when he started reading Game of Thrones. That's true. But he kept Game of Thrones in mind when he wrote Dance of Dragons. He wants right? those dots to connect still, he, yeah. Right. So I think when he wrote Fire and Blood, he wanted all the things to, to, to add up with what he had written so far. When he makes a statement to the world about, hey, there's this prophecy that Aegon had, I, I think that he is keeping it all tied together. I don't think he's just saying it willy-nilly. I think he intends... He wants at least for it to all drive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's probably thought and made sure that it does. Even if he didn't exactly have the intention in the first place, I still think it's worth us at least accounting for it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about his writing style. I think that's a, just briefly, I think that fits really well here. For example, there's one, one part from the books that people cite as something George set up way in advance, but no, he didn't actually, he, he realized it would fit later. And then what I'm talking about is when Sansa thinks about Janos Lent that she wishes some hero would throw him down and cut his head off, you know? And then Jon Snow does that later. <laughs> but people point out that in the original draft of A Dance of Dragons, he's hanged, not had his head cut off. So George didn't plan all the way back in The Clash of Kings for Jon to cut his head off. But, which is true, George didn't plan all the way back in The Clash of Kings for Jon to cut his head off. Probably not. But there's a couple possibilities here. Maybe he did and forgot about and then later realized, like, oh yeah, actually I was going to have Jon cut his head off because of that line I made back in Clash of Kings. Maybe he just forgot that in editing. He realized, oh yeah, I was going to do that. Or perhaps more likely, he realized he could fit it to that point he made back things like, oh, I can connect this to what Sansa said back then by making this a head, a head chopping instead of a, a hanging. And that's totally valid because of the way George writes in his gardener style. He leaves room for this. It's one of the reasons the dots connect so well is he doesn't write himself into corners. He leaves this option to connect the dots later. He doesn't have to go, I don't know where this dot's going to, I know exactly where this dot's going to connect later. Sometimes he does do that, but he doesn't always have to. He can go, all right, as long as I write this properly, I can connect something to it later. Once I figure out what that is, I don't have to decide right now. And it'll work later, and it sets him up for success down the road, or for good storytelling down the road. It's another value we talked a little about earlier, about how broad his story has gotten, all the backstory he's included. When you do that, you give yourself more options mm. and inspiration to tie stuff in later. I think about one time he, when he was describing the idea of his gardening style, he did say, it's, you know, like, I don't exactly know what the garden's going to look like at the end. But I know I planted tomatoes. Right? <laughs> I may choose to water them or not, but I know I did plant tomatoes. I didn't plant bananas. So I, it's not like a complete mystery. He has an intention for the garden. He might adjust it. It might come out a little different than he thought, but he knows what he planted. I think also about Better Call Saul, uh, the writers of that show said that they, and, and it's clear when you watch it, that they harvest what they've done so far. That as they write, they're constantly looking back at what they've done finding things to pull out from that, which I imagine George does a certain amount of that, too. even using the word harvest. Uh, yeah, that metaphor works well for gardening. gardening yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you've got to draw, get a good harvest out of that good gardening, yeah. <laughs> and Better Call Saul, for example, it's a prequel to Breaking Bad. So they knew certain things had to happen. Yeah, like you right? can't overwrite but, what's already there, yeah. Right, but despite, so that's like their guidance, that's what they know is planted in their garden, but they still, their writing style was generally more 
looking on looking back to what they had done so far and seeing what they could pull from it. And so a lot of times when you're watching, like, oh, what a good callback to this thing earlier. It doesn't mean when they did that thing earlier, they plan for this thing happening now. It means that they look to what happened earlier to decide what to do now. You know, and I, I bet George does a large amount of that. So two wrap-up points before we start Aegon's Landing. So to, to finally finish Guinevere Greenstone's point, you should read it how you want to. I recommend reading it with Aegon's Dream in mind. You definitely don't have to. I think you should enjoy the book the way you want to. But if you want to follow along with us as well as you can, then I do recommend that, 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 that having that point in your mind. Another thing, referring back to the discussion about breeding and dragons and, and just breeding in general is... The Valyrians were so big on just breeding in general. I mean, they're big on breeding humans. Like, they took it to a creepy, supernatural level. So, yeah, it just fits in really well with what we already know about what things they were doing. Not necessarily House Targaryen, but things that the Valyrians were doing, which the Targaryens were very likely neck deep in as well, given their relative position in that society. So, mm -hmm. important to keep that in mind, I'd say. But yes, the actual landing... As I said at the beginning, setting out with a small army is another Stannis parallel. Selyse even mentions that. She's like, you're like Aegon the Conqueror. going, And he's like, I don't have dragons. <laughs> it's like, what the hell are you talking about, woman? You know, Stannis with his harsh way of speaking. You know, Melisandre's like, yes, but you do have this. And so, like, yeah, but you have this and that. And they're trying to pr pump him up and prepare him for, well, initial failure. <laughs> and then probably later failure. But along the way, lots of entertainment and setting things up for other plot lines. We'll see, won't we? Though he likely already had Heron in mind to knock off first, as we said, he had to establish himself on the mainland first, which is this is amazing. He sets up and he's like, I don't have a base. I don't have a lot of men. I dare you to come attack me first before I get my conquest going. And none of them did, which just probably just emboldened him and his supporters even more. It's like, we're just right here. In between the Stormlands and Heron's kingdom, we're not that far from the west. Anyone, any of y'all, or the gardeners, any of them could just march right to the mouth of the Blackwater and attack him, together or separately. And it would have been interesting, and they might have even pulled it off. Certainly weren't going to bet a better chance, <laughs> right? Yeah, if they had worked together, if they had come from different directions, because the dragons aren't quite as good on defense, you know? Like, yeah. if they're on the ground, and you're suddenly getting attacked from three sides. I still might bet, especially because the dragons are good at scouting, so they might have seen it coming. That's you true, know, that's so. true. But you're right, though. It would have been interesting, like you said. It would have been interesting. It would have been hard for Aegon's plan to have played out as well as it did. Yeah. If they had. So it's funny. He says this began at the mouth of the Blackwater, a place that it seems the ancients failed to capitalize on. Aegon would literally capitalize on the place, making it his capital. <laughs> uh -huh. Not that other lords and kings hadn't tried to rule the place. It just... It had never been developed for various reasons. Here's a quote. In the days of the Hundred Kingdoms, many petty kings had claimed dominion over the river mouth. Amongst them, the Darkland kings of Duskendale, the Masseys of Stone Dance, and the river kings of old, be they muds, fishers, brackens, blackwoods, or hooks. Towers and forts had crowned the three hills at various times, only to be thrown down in one war or another. Now only broken stones and overgrown ruins remain to welcome the Targaryens. Though claimed by both Storm's End and Harrenhal, the river mouth was undefended, and the closest castles were held by lesser lords of no great power or military prowess, and lords, moreover, who had little reason to love their nominal overlord, Heron the Black. 
Aegon Targaryen quickly threw up a log and earth palisade around the highest of the three hills and dispatched his sisters to secure the submission of the nearest castles. Let's consider some of those former claims briefly. Bracken and Blackwood, that's pretty far away. Those are eyebrow-raising claims, but no, we're talking about thousands of years of history, of ins and outs, and rises and falls, and yeah, mud and fissure and hook don't even, or hooks don't even exist anymore. Those houses, they all sound like they belong in the Riverlands. River mud, <laughs> river hooks for fishing, you know. <laughs> but uh, the Bracken Blackwood claims, despite that, might be even older than these houses that are extinct. Massey is a low-key interesting player here. We'll have things to say about them on and off. As we've s- s- talked about a lot of times, there's times when houses find themselves within a sandwich. And the Masseys are our example of that. They're pretty much sandwiched between Dragonstone and Storm's End. As we said, they started to show up at Aegon's councils more and were supposed to be vassals of Storm's End, but we're pretty clearly on Team Aegon here. So that's the side of the sandwich they gravitated towards. And what's what makes it difficult for them is, yeah, they're actually physically closer to Dragonstone, but there's a sea separating them from Dragonstone and the mainland, whereas Argilac could conceivably just march right up through the Stormlands and just walk right up to their door without any impediment and say, you're on whose team now? <laughs> and you're like, actually, okay, we'll come back. Because by themselves, the Masseys would not be able to repel an attack of the Stormlands. Of course, Harrenhal's claim to the river mouth was the most recent and the most dangerous. And as we saw, the Stormlands claim was somewhat rooted in creating a buffer. As we saw, Argilac, the Argent's marriage offer was rooted in making Aegon a barrier between his lands and Harren's expansions. So the area clearly had a lot of potential. I mean, we're going to see King's Landing become the largest city in the entire realm. So clearly the area has potential. And that's obvious even without seeing the final result because it's a river mouth. And there's just so much possible trade there when you're at a river mouth. You've got the trade going upriver and the trade coming from the sea. And you're at the nexus of those two things. Plus you've got land-based trade as well. And that's going to be part of why that area becomes so big. Nina says, you might compare it to White Harbor. The reason there had never been a major city at that location isn't because it isn't strategically or commercially useful. It certainly is. But because cities cost a lot of resources to build and maintain. Upfront capital is required, an amount that the Royal Stark simply didn't have. They're too busy, for example, spending their money on preparing for the next winter. They never have, like, an extra enough amount of cash to build a whole city, (laughs) right? Like, that's a lot of initial investment. It takes a certain ambition. It takes a certain amount of, I don't know, foundational wealth and, and ambition. And the, the, clearly the Stark motto is winter's coming. You know, they're going to, rather than, if they ever have a surplus, rather than investing in building a new city, they're going to set it aside for the next winter. Yeah, and you might argue, too, some Starks might be like, why do we want to increase the population of the North? That's just more mouths to feed, especially in a city that doesn't produce, cities don't produce food. The lands around them might, but cities produce like goods and wealth and, and intellect. They could, 
they could trade that yeah. for imported food. It's, yes. I think it's a little short-sighted to not want the city. I but, agree. I agree. Because it's understandable to be short-sighted when you live in a desolate, frozen wasteland. Yeah, you might not <laughs> see how that would work out to your benefit. You might be like, yeah, no, just yeah. adding all these people, that sounds like a terrible idea. In the long term, actually, it works out really well. But getting over that hump of that long term yeah. might cause a lot of suffering until the Mandalorians come in with their big amount of extra cash. And like, oh, now all of a sudden, we do have that option. And that was just credit to... I forget which Stark it was. It was like, maybe now we can build that city because these guys are coming in with all this cash. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, so, which also gives us a lesson about the relative wealth of these different places and how wealth can only go so far when it comes to military power. It can help it, but it also can't overcome it sometimes. Like, the Manderleys would never have been able to defeat the Starks, not in a million years. But they might have been able to outspend them. <laughs> of course, they were spending for them instead of against them because they wanted to come live in their lands. But hey, same difference in terms of possibilities. Let's talk about who... Yeah, think of the... Go ahead. Sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but just think about the nature of how resources would get used, saved, accumulated, invested, or whatever in the North and the Reach, for example. So in the North, they would constantly spend a lot of effort chopping down trees and then burning that wood just to stay warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the South, there was been a lot of effort planting orchards <laughs> and in harvesting apples and peaches to trade to the North for wood or eat to stay on and on and on. Does that make sense? It like does. the North just has to incinerate their work to, to not die in a winter where the South barely faces a winter. And the, instead of incinerating their wealth, they have enough food already and they trade it for more wealth. And so they build cities and on and on. They have that. They can make the initial investment. They've got enough money in the bank for that. Yeah, like the Lannisters yeah. have. That's why they have Lannisport. And the Reach has Old Town. And the Vale has Gull Town. Like, these places all have a city that represents where they were able to make that investment. The closest in the north prior to White Harbor was, I guess, Barrowton, which is a substantial large town, but not a, not large enough to be a city. Let's talk about who Aegon had on his side. Team Aegon, we'll call it. Obviously, Visenya and Rhaenys are well-known, and we'll expand on the, on those two later, as well as on Aegon. They're important, full, dive, deep-dive topics. But they obviously didn't do it alone, those three, apart from Oris Baratheon, who we discussed last time a bit, and we'll have more to say about him. Let's consider who else they had, the ones who were there with him from the beginning. Some of these names you've heard before, because we've talked about these houses, we focused on them individually, and, of course, their position within Aegon's conquest and his reign thereafter was important when we're focusing on those houses. For example, House Valarian. Lord Daemon was his first admiral, uh, became his master of ships once, the, you know, once these things got settled. His sons, Lord Daemon's sons, Aethon, would be the next master of ships and lord of uh, Driftmark. And Corlys would be the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, which doesn't come along for a little while yet. But still, these guys, before they had these roles, before Ethan was the master of ships in place of his father, and before Corlys became Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, well, these guys weren't babies then. We're only talking about 10 years later. This guy didn't become Lord Commander of the Kingsguard when he was 20, probably. So, I mean, it's possible, but prob my point is probably these guys participated in the early wars at Aegon's side, as warriors and commanders before they got these later, more fancy titles when things were more established. We talked about the Celtigars, or Celtigars, if you prefer. Lord Crispian, or Cur 
Kisprian? I don't know. You can't do that one with a hard C, can you? Sprispian? Sprispian? Yeah, Sprispian. Soon he was the master of coin, or master of soin, if you prefer. Uh, he would have already been funding weaponry, ships, supplies, probably. I don't know if he would have been in the battles, but maybe. Yeah. Quentin Coharis, he probably fought because he was the Dragonstone master at arms. That guy was a warrior. He's the one who taught Aegon and Oris and Visenya. Because Visenya is certainly very capable with Dark Sister. So when we say those people train together, especially Aegon and Oris, they, they learn to sword fight together. This was the guy teaching them. So he almost certainly marched with them. Unless he was ancient by this time, which is possible, but probably not. He was probably appointed to this position of Master at Arms by their father, Lord Arian. And if he's older than we, we think, uh, then he might have been appointed by Lord Arian's father, Damien. So this this Coharius guy, Quentin, would have been around for at least one prior lord, if not more. And thus he would have had a lot of um, authority, social authority, over Aegon and Ores, even though they clearly are way above him in rank. Just the fact that he had a, a teaching position over them, was able to tell them what to do. It's kind of a different kind of relationship. Most of these nobles, no one tells them what to do, but you have an instructor that you're supposed to listen to. It's kind of a different sort of pseudo version of, of that where, yes, you're ultimately in charge of this guy giving you orders, but you got to listen to him to learn the things he's teaching you. So it's kind of a there's a little more of a personal relationship involved there and a little more back and forth. It's kind of an interesting thing there. And in res relevant to his age, Quentin at this point had two sons and one grandson. So that's why he might have been older. Uh, the sons almost certainly fought in the war as well. The grandsons, the grandson probably didn't, uh, though maybe he did. Maybe he was old enough. The grandson is the one who's going to inherit Harrenhal later. So it's possible the two sons die during these wars. Or maybe one of them does and then the other dies later before they can inherit Harrenhal, before Lord Quentin dies. Anyway, a lot of possibilities there. It's Lord Tristan Massey who comes over from Stone Dance, and Lord Bar Emmon of Sharp Point. So yeah, we can assume pretty much all these guys were involved in the conquest in various ways, whether swords in hand or coins being spent, and then afterwards towards these building projects. For example, the Aegon Fort. We talked about the large earthen wood palisade built around Aegon's High Hill. What it would That's what it eventually became to be known as. We don't know what it was called at this point. And a lot of that would have been paid for by Celtigar and Valarian and uh, the manpower used to build it, same deal. Would have been a lot of their people doing it, not just Aegon's. Would have been his vassals. So it, it's, it's mentioned that his sisters were sent out to get the submissions of some of the local lords. Now this is almost an automatic. They're going to show up with a big dragon and the ability to bring more men to the field. And these are just small, petty lords that don't really have the ability to stand up. These are the ones that would have bent the knee right away had the letters been addressed to them. But no, the letters just went to the seven kings slash princess, queen, etc. Not these lesser lords. But they would have known about it. Of course, they would have heard. Everyone would have been talking about it. So they'd have been like, yeah, when he comes, we'll bend the knee. We're not going to fight that. I mean, come on. Get get serious here. We've got 300 men. You know, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, Aegon doesn't have a lot for a conquest. But he's got more than we do. And he's got the dragons. So... We're bending the knee. So, who is that? Aegon, Aegon wanting to take conquest against a whole continent is one thing. 
Aegon wanted to take conquest against a village. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah, that's, that part's easy. They're like, yeah, you got it. That's one of those examples where whoever rides in and says, I'm in charge now, they're going to be like, okay, <laughs> we're not going <laughs> to stop you. <laughs> You're in charge now. You, <laughs> you said so, and we can't tell you otherwise. So, yeah, there would have been a, a lot of smaller, perhaps unnamed lesser lordlings around here. Some that we know a little better. Like, we know Visenya went to Crackclaw Point. They still consider themselves, quote, good dragon men. Dick Crab said that exact thing. We'll come back to this a little later because this might have come a little bit later. I'm not sure when Crackclaw Point submitted. There's not a lot of manpower there. It wouldn't have been high on the list. And it's a little farther north, so it's not that near to the Blackwater. But at some point that happened. We're not exactly told which ones bend the knee immediately, except for a couple examples, For exa uh, which includes uh, Rosby, Rhaenys went there. There was no resistance. Rosby just bent the knee. Visenya went to Stokeworth. <laughs> Nominal resistance at Stokeworth. They fired a few crossbow bolts at her. She burned their roof. They surrendered. She was probably knew it would only take a little bit. They're like, all oh, they're firing is a few cross. This is a very half-hearted -heart, uh, half defense here. I think they're ready to surrender. I'm just going to show them a little bit of what we're capable of. One blast from Vagar. They're like, okay, that's enough. We're done. We we fought you, though. We can say we tried to resist. A little bit of bravery, but that's it. <laughs> I was going to say that might be a similar scenario to what we were talking about earlier, maybe on a bigger scale, but maybe the, the lords and leaders here know they need to at least show some effort, whether it's to make their people feel better about their identity or to make their liege lord not want revenge later when the dragon's not around, whatever it is. I can... I, and I could see uh, Aegon and Visenya, whoever, like, understanding and respecting that, too. I think it was probably a discussed part of the plan. I think that they, as we said earlier, I think that Aegon uh, probably did have a little more, more foresight into how this is going to play out, all the if-thens of the scenario. I bet he did understand the idea that we need to let them save face. We can't just embarrass yes. everybody. Right? Yes, that's very true, because it absolutely ties to what you said before about them looking like cowards. You can't have, you can't embarrass them, because that's part of what enables them to rule their lands well is people yeah. believing that they will do what they say people believing that they're strong you don't want to piss off someone who's strong you might risk temp pissing off someone who's weak yeah like not being able to defeat a dragon isn't weak yeah. immediately surrendering to someone's letter is weak yes right yeah so uh, or let's recall that excellent line from house of the dragon a willing uh, an unwillingness to murder is not weakness right there's a lot of things yeah, that don't, are not cowardice that some people may call cowardice just because they're trying to use the frame framing of cowardice as a motivator you against know, you, you know like, I think no, that's of, not made doesn't make me coward i think of there's the iconic uh back of the future through line in all the movies that was Marty McFly's fatal weakness. Oh, that yeah. You, no, one you, calls no one calls me, calls me yellow. No one calls me coward, no matter what movie chicken it was. Chicken. <laughs> that was the thing that just, he, every time he shouldn't have done something. He shouldn't have. You're right. And we use that. We talked about that with Victorian and how that's all Euron had to do to get Victorian to sail across the globe was like, oh, you're scared, huh? Well, I'm not scared. <laughs> yeah. I'll sail anywhere. <laughs> That's that was it. He wasn't gonna do it. He's like, I don't want to do that. That's just like a lot of work. What's the point? He's like, Oh, you're scared. He's like, Oh, I'll do it. And that's all. It's, it's like, the easiest thing ever. It's like Jim toying with Dwight or something. Yeah, it's like all you got to do is bring up cowardice, and there's like it's like they're the higher yeah. thinking shuts off. D D toying with Mac, like 
Yeah. <laughs> you probably can't even spin the bowling ball, can you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can spin it. She said I couldn't spin it, though. She said it. I have to do it. I have to prove her wrong. There's no, <laughs> I must. <laughs> she called me out. I have to respond. That's just like, well, I have to. Yeah, you have no choice. So, interestingly, we talk about manpower. We talk about Aegon's little bit of manpower. And we look at what Stannis does eventually is he gets a hold of some money. And he's like, I'm hiring mercenaries. I need manpower. Aegon had money, didn't hire mercenaries. He, now there's, like I said, surely could have afforded them. The Celticars, the Velaryons, and the Targaryens combined. Surely they had plenty of cash. We even hear that, that they used their position in the Narrow Sea to get wealthy off of passing trade. So we know they had plenty of cash. But it goes against this power attitude projection thing. He's like, I don't need help. I don't need allies. I don't need hired hands. Everyone who fights for me fights for me because they're loyal to me, because they believe in my supremacy, not because I paid them. So it doesn't really fit with that. It just kind of looks bad to bring in sellswords. It's just Westerosi nobility and cultural values. Yeah, they don't like sellswords. They're kind of, they look down on. Like, people don't like people who, they don't, Westerosi don't like people who fight for gold. Fighting for loyalty, that's a virtue. Now, obviously, we can quibble with that, but that's not the point. The point is that is how Westerosi people tend to think, especially the higher lords. So this would look bad if he used sellswords. The sellswords also bring other, I don't know, unreliable dynamics yeah. into play. What if the sellswords do start to pillage towns yeah. that he didn't want or turn against them or on and on? So. And even though they had enough money to hire them, they're not the richest. What if the... Gardeners or Lannisters use their greater right, fine. Well, to suborn yeah. those units. Notably, the Gardeners and, and the Lannisters and folks didn't appear to hire mercenaries of their own either. But that's, again, because of these cultural values, most likely. So, yeah, if they didn't, get, they didn't want to do it. It's the same reason Aegon doesn't want to do it. They might have had less ability, too. Like, they're, I don't know, they're on the landlocked and or on the far side of mm. S. Like, what's the timing? How is someone yeah, going to reach? What that's, are they going to hire? Yeah. Uh, the Vale could have, or the Stormlands probably could have from overseas. Yeah. They might have yeah. had time, and maybe even the North. But you're right. The West and the Reach might have been more difficult for them to get people over there in time for it to matter. Because, this did, yeah, this didn't exactly take a long time. Even though Aegon didn't rush to the conquest, he had things to do first, like build the Aegon Fort and get the submission of nearby lords and continue to equip these new people and get them to fight his way and all that. These things are slow, marching from town to town and, and getting everybody together. Yeah, there's, there is a substantial amount of time, but we're it's longer to bring mercenaries over from Essos by it's ship. It's an even more and, substantial amount of time yeah. to find the sellers, negotiate a contract, transport them over, get them to your capital or whatever. Yeah. And in the meantime, a dragon might just go burn them. Yeah. <laughs> And a smaller amount of troops does have some advantages to it. It makes you leaner as a force. You need fewer supplies. You need fewer commanders. You can move you quicker. Move quicker. Yeah, you don't have to like get everyone organized. Like marching a large force takes like getting everybody up at a certain time and then coordinating when they're going to leave. You can't all just leave at the same time when there's like ten thousand of you. You're, like the road isn't wide enough, so you have to coordinate that and arrange for that. Okay, this group goes first. This group goes second. This group goes third. The wagons have to be care. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to it, especially. I mean, let's keep in mind, folks. No King's Road, no paved roads, hardly at all around here. So these they're just marching through beaten paths, and that does make troop movements a little bit harder. So again, smaller amount of troops helps dodge some of these logistical problems. It's easy to forget alongside those roads that there's none of the later 
institutions and power structures that will eventually be around will be there. Obviously, no King's Landing, not even the start of a city at this point, perhaps. Some hovels and fishing villages, maybe. Aegon's uh, timber and earth fortress was just that. It wasn't a city yet. It wasn't the start of a city. It was just a fortress. It eventually becomes the Red Keep. But that area was low population. So this is a portion of the mainland was not tightly held. This entire area, even though it had been claimed by Heron and Argilac and some of their descent, uh, ancestors, but if they waited, that might change. Like, Heron might start to exert his authority more directly over this area. So there were some independent sources of manpower the Targaryens wanted to claim before it was too late. Like, if those nearby, if Duskendale or Rosby had been taken over by Black Heron... Well, that's just another obstacle for them that's very close to where they're establishing their base. So even beyond the timing of making stealing a Heron's Thunder by landing the same day he finishes his castle, there are other considerations as well in terms of where Heron would go next. Okay, he finished his castle. What's he going to do after that? Probably expand his territory. Okay, so it's a, multiple reasons to stop him before he gets any farther because those soldiers become his if he takes those places. And if you get them first, those are your soldiers. So that's a, a double-double whammy. Like, you don't, you don't have to face those troops. They're fighting for you. And it's not just so the win, troops. Win, it's win. the money. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. So it's pretty, it's pretty smart. Let's talk about the Aegon Fort. Again, here's a, a map shot that shows us the three major hills. Nicely aligned with the three heads of the dragon. <laughs> How convenient. Rhaenys' hill, Visenya's hill, Aegon's high hill. And you can see the eventual, if you're looking at the map, you can see eventually where King's Landing was developed. You can see how it formed, the walls, which of course weren't there at this point. But these, these denominations, these markers might have been there. Like proto-structures would have been built atop Visenya's and Rhaenys' hill. Would have been watchtowers, smaller fortresses, things like that. And the fishing villages would have started to have been like, hey, let's look to them for protection. We'll definitely swear fealty to these people. They've got dragons. They're building stuff. This looks good to us. They're not enslaving people like Heron. So, <coughs> pardon me, by uh, if they're choosing between the people that have claimed the territory and the people who are actually present doing so, it's a pretty much a no-brainer. Like, you'd obviously rather follow the Targaryens, I think, than Heron. That's easy. Now, Argilac is different because he's a follower of the Seven. But still, I think you'd rather follow Aegon because he just seems more capable. And Argilac is... His kingdom has been pushed back for a while. So, by pers from reputation, yes, Argilac is dangerous and powerful, but his kingdom has been shrinking. So he might seem, whereas Aegon's the, the one on the rise, he might seem like the better alternative in terms of going forward, in addition to maybe seeming more powerful, even with fewer troops. Also, you know, uh, if it's close, even if it's not close, the person standing in front of you is the one you're more likely to follow, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whether they have 30,000 troops or 3,000 troops, when they're standing in front of you with 3,000 troops, like, okay, okay, what do you, what do you want us to do now? Yeah. <laughs> so nowadays, atop those hills is the Red Keep, the Great Sept of Baelor, and the ruins of the Dragon Pit. It, for a while, it had the actual Dragon Pit, but 
you kind of wonder what was there first. It's interesting to think about how, like, let's frame it this way. Imagine King Aegon with his enormous dragon, his ancient Valyrian heraldry. He's knelt to receive this. He's already been crowned, by the way. This is before the crowning at the Starry Sept, of course. That's the one that everyone remembers and the one that Aegon dates his reign for. But he was crowned as soon as he landed by Visenya, that Valyrian steel circlet that he wears, the one that's worn by many kings after him, is placed on his head at this point, as soon as he, basically as soon as he makes landfall, which I believe is a parallel to William the Conqueror. Uh, but think about this, this is neat, like, all the dragons, his sisters, the heraldry, the sword, barely matched anywhere in the world, Blackfire, and all this is happening in a log fort around a hill <laughs> that's not quite as fancy as it will be later it's like all this really powerful heraldry ancient stuff in a log cabin it's not a cabin but you know it's funny it's it, it makes the uh example stand out a little more if i call it a cabin <laughs> and at some point it probably was just a little cabin before it expanded <laughs> call it a love shack a love shack ah, <laughs> a three-way love shack yes you know i i that is interesting to point out that it does create some imagery you might not expect, yeah. right? Like, I don't think anyone's made that art yet, right? Oh, uh, ah, yes. Good be point. Anyone listening, here's a, here's a call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it is, it's neat to think about how many, uh, you know, great kingdoms started with humble beginnings. You know, like, Genghis Khan wasn't in some castle, he was right? Yurt. He was literally, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, even the... You know, I don't know, the stories of like, you know, I don't know, George Washington or Abe Lincoln born in log cabins and, and what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. The, the writing of the Constitution, you know, they they uh, it was hot when they were writing the Constitution. It was so hot outside. They wanted to open the windows, but they didn't. They kept the windows closed because there was so much horse manure outside. It smelled so bad. They kept the windows closed and just dealt with the heat. And in the meantime, they're writing the Constitution of the United States of America. You know, that's like the conditions they were in. They weren't in some fancy castle it's probably like you have know. to be careful that their sweat doesn't drip onto the, <laughs> on the parchment yeah, yeah it wasn't it was the, some of the original wording was lost because of sweat droplets it's like i don't know i <laughs> got to fill that back in. i don't know what they wrote we got to fill that back in yeah it's it's neat to think about that and that is what king's landing becomes until like jaharis and barth install like sewage systems and and proper flowing water it is kind of nasty like you're describing I mean, Harris was up till I want to say like the 16, 1700s. It was like unlivable, you know. He, like even in the modern time, even in like nineteen seventy, the, the the river in Paris you couldn't swim or drink in it. It was poisonous. Yeah, it's only in the past generation as they that started to be dealt with. So. And yeah, you got to figure it's probably similar. The mouth of Blackwater is probably highly polluted, is with less with industrial waste, but there'd be some because they would have logging operations and mining and stuff, and they'd be dumping wastewater in there. The ancient world could produce some. Pretty severe waste, even compared to modern times. Probably because they didn't know what some of the consequences were. And we still don't. So they knew even less. When you start to have cities, when you start to have populations of scores of thousands of people, that's when human waste starts to to matter. Yeah. And of course, nowadays in King's Landing, it's become a problem again because it's outgrown some of its own sewage system. People, there's multiple characters who talk about King's Landing smell. It's like, oh. I can smell it before I got there. And someone like Davos mm-hmm. says every yeah. city has a distinct smell and King's Landings mm-hmm. is the worst of the five, you know, by far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the landing was progressing pretty well. But meanwhile, what was going on elsewhere in the realm? We've really focused just on this, but 
There had to be a lot of back and forth discussions, a lot of ravens and horse messengers between the lords and ladies in the region as things progressed. Like this Aegon guy, he's he's built a castle now. He's claimed a few lords. Like he's not he's doing what he said he would do. Is is someone going to stop him? Well, again, this was the time to maybe gang up on him and do something. No one did it when he just has an earthen castle, not even a castle. Still, had a dragon sitting there or three dragons. That's not exactly as simple as I might portray it. But again. It's still probably their best chance to stop him, and they didn't. They didn't do that. No one else wanted to be the one to. Well, let them do it. Let someone else stop him. Uh, let let Argilac do it. Let Heron do it. Let the Westerlands do it. Let the yeah. No one wanted to be the first, except for maybe a few smaller scale people that were really close by. And the the people living in what's now the Crownlands, as I said, it wasn't the Crownlands then. It quickly did become that. They rarely, if ever, had strong leadership. There's a long history of people being caught in the middle of this region being like the neutral zone that's sort of quibbled over, occasionally fought over, and has just had a rotating, a revolving door of leadership. They're probably pretty sick of it. They're probably like, yeah, this puts us at risk. Anyone can just come in here and shred us and take our stuff, and there'd be nothing we could do about it. It'd be nice to have a strong leader to question tie us all together and protect us silly question for you what's that so when some of the crown lands were owned by like heron would he have called them the drown lands (laughs) (laughs) if when the tie when the i guess it would have been uh gardeners had some of the crown lands was it the grown land (laughs) (laughs) i'm groaning at this joke (laughs) (laughs) that's turning into the frown lands yeah it's what got me started actually was frown i was thinking of frown lands like yeah they probably were frowning anyway (laughs) and when all the human waste piles up it's the brown land brown lands that's hilarious i like that one best of all i think actually nice any other ideas, folks? What other rhymes could we fit in there? If you had cats, if they had the enough meow court lands. gestures, oh, the meowlands. Meow I was thinking if there were enough court gestures, it could be the clown lands. Oh, I like the clown lands <laughs> too. Nice, nice. Yeah, the, the clown god. I've, I've, I accidentally said that once. The clown. Yeah, god. you did. <laughs> <laughs> now we believe that's who Patchface actually worships. The clown god. That's why it's so creepy. Because clowns are creepy, man. Yeah. I would rather live in the Crown Lands than the Clown Lands, for sure. <laughs> Yikes. I would rather live in the Clown Lands. Really? Hmm. Okay. I don't have the same aversion to clowns that I think a lot of people do. I, I To me, they are a funny jester. I like clowns. Clowns are fun. <laughs> but I, clowns I are funny, as Homer would say. <laughs> so the fact that the people have had a hard time in this area and that it's never had stability or has rarely had stability or hasn't had stability for long periods of time is why this next quote is actually believable and maybe not just a rewriting of history to make Aegon seem a little better, you know, a history written by the winners kind of situation. Here, judge for yourself. Quote. Heraldic banners have long been a tradition amongst the lords of Westeros. But such had never been used by the dragon lords of old Valyria. When Aegon's knights unfurled his great silken battle standard with a red three-headed dragon breathing fire upon a black field, the lords took it for a sign that he was now truly one of them, a worthy high king for Westeros. When Queen Visenya placed a Valyrian steel circlet studded with rubies on her brother's head and Queen Rhaenys hailed him as 
Aegon, first of his name, king of all Westeros, and shield of his people. The dragons roared, and the lords and knights sent up a cheer. But the small folk, the fishermen, and field hands and good wives shouted loudest of all. Yeah, when I first read that quote, I was like, did they really? But the more we delve into it, I'm like, yeah, I can maybe kind of believe it, that they did want a strong leader, and this looked like it, and they were right. So it's not a case of, yay, someone new to boss us around. It's a case of someone looking like they may actually be capable of being a good leader, something this region lacked. It looked like a reprieve from the inevitability of Heron, who had not treated his subjects well, to put it mildly, and was probably coming for them. They might have been like, uh-oh, how much longer do we have before this guy comes into our region and enslaves us and makes us worship the drowned god or cut down werewoods or whatever he's going to have us do? And it also looked like Egan was going to build, was going to create opportunities. He was going to build a city or a castle or both, and that means infrastructure. That means, in modern terms, that's like creating jobs and creating work and creating stability. Still, even with that, even with that point made, it's hard to imagine there weren't plenty of doubters, malcontents, and people who were strong worshippers of the Seven that didn't really see this guy as, as the answer because he was not godly. Even if he was making some godly noises, still, there's some obvious violations of cultural traditions laid down by the Seven, like multiple wives, like dragons, like their history being disconnected from all that, like they're not Andals. There might have been some racism or prejudice, whatever the Westerosi equivalent is, from the fact that they're not like, like us or whatever. Another thought... You know, depending on your interpretation, that that uh, you know, the this could all be accurate, but it's being presented as kind of like we're supposing here, like, oh, this hero has come to save us, and so we're going to cheer. But there could also have been fear. They might have thought he's about to burn us all to death with the dragon, so that other people from some other land can move into our farms. Oh no, he wants to be our king. Okay, fine. He's not burning us with dragons. Yay! Not burning us with dragons. You know, that's enough to cheer for. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree, yeah. <laughs> it's and there's also a possibility if we have to keep in mind of paid malcontents. That's always a possibility. Whenever you have a crowd, whenever you have a riot breakout, there's always a possibility that someone incited it, and that may have been mm -hmm. intentional. It may have not just been someone who's really mad. Sometimes a riot is incited by a person who's genuine genuinely angry, and that flame sort of catches and, and goes to a lot of places that are unpredictable. But sometimes, like the King's Landing Bread Riot, there's suspicions that someone tried to, you know, maybe add a little kindling to that or a little spark to that fire and, and maybe get that going. So there's a ripe opportunity here for that. I don't know if Heron or Argilac were the type to do this. Or maybe Shara Aaron or Princess Maria or anyone else. Any doesn't have to be one of the great greater kings sending some agents there to maybe stir up the crowds against Aegon and be like, no, you know, death to Dragon Lord. Maybe not quite that blatant, but people who would boo and maybe encourage other people to boo and go around and get the vibe of, of like, are they happy about this or are the people going along with this? And then go report back to the kings, the, the kings and, and lords back in their native regions and be like, yeah. He's making progress. The people are following him. They're they're accepting him as their ruler. So this is progressing, and it's he is going to come for us eventually. You know, and they might use that sort of intrigue to try to stop it. Maybe, maybe there were assassination attempts earlier than this. We know that they happened from the Darnish, but maybe there were some earlier ones. 
It's not super clear, but that would be a thing to do, right? Like, rather than try to beat the dragons head on, you wouldn't want to admit to doing this necessarily because it's not honorable. It's not noble to assassinate a foe. You're supposed to beat them on the battlefield. That's the Westerosi value. But if no one knows <laughs> you did it, you might still have a, a pragmatic reason to do it without other people knowing. And if you're maybe you have to have the ability to pull that off. You have to have a spy network or you have to have assassins. I'm not sure that Argolak had that. I'm not sure that Heron Hor had that sort of thing, but someone might. Yeah. I, I'm going to suppose when I, when I think about this, that it's not likely maybe from a smaller or more local house, but I think that the other Lords are too arrogant. They're just not worried about mm-hmm. them. They're not scouting that like, like we yeah, talked earlier, he landed they could have got him. They just saw oh, he landed or whatever. They, they were almost indifferent. And maybe some that maybe would have cared or might would have done something too far away, like the north's too far away to send a scout down there and get all the way back. Like it might have been too difficult. And also the north, maybe that's it doesn't seem like their, their MO, that kind mm. of like subversive, sneaky kind of thing, not their kind of thing, you know, but. Maybe maybe Lannisport, maybe the Lannisters might have sent some scouts over there. They're the ones that might be most likely to have had some spying or assassination attempts. But but I, they also are the type to be so arrogant and not think it matters. Like, he's not really going to do this. We've been here thousands of years. We're also farther re- removed. Like, physically, our land is farther away from what's going on than, you know, the Stormlands and the Riverlands. So. Right on. Well said. Well point. It's... Let's talk about the newness of the banner and the sigil itself. Nina says it's, I think it was a conscious decision from the pre-conquest Targaryens to maintain a separate identity from continental Westeros. Remember how even Illyrio and the Bravosi Mamardana mock the Westerosi fondness for sigils. I don't think the Valyrians would have been any different in seeing sigils as a silly, barbaric custom of the West, proof of their lack of refinement compared to the dragon lords of Valyria. The Targaryens, the last of these dragon lords, might have thought that if they stooped to this level and adopted their own sigil, they would lose some of that Valyrian distinction. But Aegon apparently saw it differently. He saw it being one of them was necessary to rule them. And it seems to he may have been right. This this distance, this separation is not a benefit to rulership in a lot of ways. It might make them feel better about their pride and their superiority as a culture, but it's not going to win them friends and allies. You're not going to overawe that many people by being snooty. And we've seen this in the real world a lot. Like there were some of the kings of England that also ruled kingdoms in France at the time when they were during the times like the, the Angevin dynasty and the uh, some of the others that ruled that area. They would, there, were, there were multiple kings of England that didn't speak English. You know, like, that's a good example of like, oh, well, I'm too good to speak English. Well, if you had, you might not have lost England. <laughs> you know, that was a real point against you when things really came to a head. Whereas Aegon's the opposite. He's like, I'm going to be as much like them as I can to win them over and make things go smoother. I'm not going to force this change on them because it's too big of a change. It sets up rebellions. It sets up bad feelings. It sets up resentment. William the Conqueror behaved similarly. He, now they already shared a religion. France and England when he subjugated England, but still he adopted a lot of local customs in some ways. Some things he changed dramatically, which Aegon will do as well, and some of his descendants will, but whenever possible, he tried to make it easy so that things, they wouldn't have as many reasons to unite against these changes that they disagree with because they're so 
uh, deeply rooted or they're so used to it or they just don't like they've been long disliked the values held by this other side so they're predisposed towards hating targaryen beliefs or valyrian religion things like that they're never going to accept that so yeah another factor to consider here probably the primary point or origin of these banners is battlefield signaling like yeah. we're the good guys this is home base that's the captain over there right they're starting up a war with new armies, new soldiers from new lands. They might it, it might have been a practical thing that Aegon realized beyond the sort of symbolicness and the incorporating the culture, but also we need to know that those are our troops and those are the enemy troops and our troops need to know like what et cetera, et cetera. There's some 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 practical value to establishing a banner for the soldiers on the field. That's a good point. Yeah. You wonder if they used banners and not heraldic banners in war for like that. Like this was a symbol of the first company, but they're not, they're not tied to one house or one family. They're tied to, they're just a unit of the state, you know, something like that, which, cause you're right. Like sometimes the idea that they didn't have any banners in battle is weird, but, but not having a family, not having a family. So that's not weird. You can imagine the Targaryens didn't have to fight many battles, and when they did, they're on dragons. They're not worried about whose troops are underground. They're all bad guys. Just go burn them with your dragon. But now (laughs) when you're trying to use troops, and some of the troops are new to your side, and you don't have as many dragons, there's all these reasons. Sometimes banners on on a battlefield, too, would be like, uh, you know, there'd be uh, banners of a house, you know, signaling what faction you were, and some sub-houses and allies and all these different things. But sometimes it would just be like color-coded stuff, like, you know, I mean, the most obvious famous is just a white flag is, you know, a peace retreat or whatever. But but there will be many other ways to signal on a battlefield with the banner or flame or whatever else. Yeah. And as well, there would be examples of this is just how it's always been. This is how Westerosi peasants have been trained to fight. Why reinvent the wheel? They know to follow a banner. They know to, that's how they've been taught and trained. Why reinvent? warfare like that works well enough yeah so why why change that just just do the way it's always been again that simplify you know there's no reason to do reinvent the wheel there it's also interesting to consider that the whether the, the celtigars and valarians when they when did they come up with a banner did they do it when the targaryens did like okay we'll also become part of this or did they already do it have they already adopted some of those customs maybe that's part of why Aegon did he's like hey it actually has worked out pretty well for these guys let's let's do it also but from a greater position of strength rather than just trying to fit in. We're trying to fit in so that we can dominate, not just trying to fit in so we can be prosperous, which are not the same approach. But also the symbol itself is interesting. Like you can see why the Celtigars picked their symbol and the, because Claw Isle is full of crabs, you know, I guess, and the seahorse, they're a naval power, but a three-headed dragon, I mean, that seems to indicate Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys. It seems pretty straightforward. But it might be related to a dream. If if Aegon's dream involved the three-headed dragon doing these things or a symbolic three-headed dragon uniting the realm, which may come again with Danny and her three dragons maybe uniting the realm. Maybe that's what he actually dreamed of and thought it was him. Maybe it was both. Again, we have to keep a very open mind literally for the conception and possibility of what Aegon's dream or dreams told him and how he interpreted them. There's two different things there. There's what the dream actually indicated and what he thought of it. And actually a possible third thing is when he's telling his sisters and, and perhaps close friends about it, what's their interpretation of it. And then, or 
when his sisters are telling him about the dream that they had. Yeah, there's an entire, <laughs> you're right. There, or the dreams that they read about in Signs and Portents that Danies had written down. They're corroborating these different things, and like it's just so wide open, the possible interpretations. By the way, aside from uh, dream interpretations, another angle to take on the reasoning of their their sigil with the three dragon heads is it could represent a family of dragons. It's not one dragon, mm. right? Like we have a Good lot point. of dragons. Yeah, We're a like family it. of dragons. You know, you, you maybe you win one battle or you beat one dragon, but we're a whole family of dragons. It, it, it kind of going back to the, just the overwhelming force here. You can't beat it. Sorry. We have a family of dragons. Not that a Hydra exists in that war in Westeros. Not that I know of, but it fits that idea. You cut one head off and two more just grow in its place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't beat it by just cutting one head off. Nina wants to also bring up the title that Aegon is claiming because it's pretty interesting. And this is a great catch by her, a great uh, subtopic to consider. It is not the one Aegon or any of the other Targaryen kings end up adopting. It's distinctly non-feudal. Aegon is describing himself as king of all Westeros, eliminating the political, 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 cultural borders, which had divided Westeros for the better part of 8,000 years. This is Aegon as absolute monarch, redefining the realm not just as a single political entity, but a state which he controls totally and personally. That absolutism extends to the second half of the title. Aegon is personally pledging to defend, quote, his people without the intervention of their feudal or pre-conquest overlords. Aegon also does not put any emphasis on his familial name for all his willingness to adopt a sigil in the manner of established Westerosi dynasties. He is ruling the realm as his own person rather than as merely the representative of a new dynasty. What Nina means by that, that last part, Aegon, first of his name, king of all Westeros and shield of his people. Not Aegon Targaryen, first of his name, king of all Westeros and shield of his people. Not Aegon of House Targaryen, just Aegon, first of his name, king of all. They don't, do not mention the word Targaryen. And that is a quote. That is not, that is what they're saying Queen Rhaenys actually said. Those are apparently her exact words. They don't say the word Targaryen. Very interesting. That's why I call this a very good catch, because I didn't notice that the word Targaryen wasn't used in that declaration. And it's very notable when you when you think about it. I don't exactly know what they meant, but I like I like Nina's take on it that that's it's it's a it's another power move. It's like, yeah, me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will decide who my heir is, right? I will have kids and, and that won't necessarily be the way it goes, but yeah. It's Pretty interesting. Well, I welcome other interpretations and takes on this spot. Speaking of a change of leadership, let's also remind ourselves briefly what else was happening elsewhere in the world as we make our way towards the end of this episode. This was happening roughly coordinated with the end of the era known as the Century of Blood. I mean, Aegon fought in the Century of Blood. So did Argolak. They fought in some wars during it. And Argolak and Aegon, Argolak may have fought in some stuff before that too. We just know he fought against Volantis, and so did Aegon. But there, there's lots of tumult and chaos in the Century of Blood. It's a whole century. We know a lot about it, but there's a hell of a lot we don't know about it. There's a lot of room for more things. So there was disruption everywhere. But towards the end of the Century of Blood, things were starting to settle down. Things were starting to evolve. The new world, the new era, was starting to take shape. The free cities were a lot closer to actually living up to their name. They're still not free, but they were less, they're more free than they were. Slaver's Bay had been under Valyrian rule for eons and was now free 
to be slavers independently <laughs> instead of slavers under Valyria. So <laughs> the cities became self-governed, not free. That's That seems to be a better way to phrase it. Self-governed, yes. Free from higher authority. <laughs> not that the people in it are free, but the right. rulers are independent more from like, other rulers. Yeah, they're more like city-states, yes. It's a bit of a reversal on a global scale. Valyria had left Westeros alone, other than, you know, the outpost and trading with it, sending some Valyrian steel in there. Now that they're gone, all those former territories are various shades of independent. And it's Westeros that's now set to be united under one new dynasty. Instead of Valyrian freehold dominating Essos and so much of it and, and dominating parts of the world that they don't even rule because of their great wealth and power and no one wants to mess with them and etc. It's... The fusel, the one surviving Dragonlord family is now repeating that on the one continent that Valyria had left alone. So it's just like black and white. Essos is getting freer. Westeros is getting more united and less free in some ways, but more free in other ways. Because, yes, liberty isn't just telling you you can do whatever you want. And being freedom is also involves having the ability to be free, which you can't do if the realm is chaotic and violent and brutal, which to start off the area that Aegon was landing in was a little chaotic and he was bringing peace and stability to that region and intended to bring it to the rest of the continent. So a lot of people's lives will get a lot better under him. So in some ways they are more free, free to not be killed <laughs> or free to be less likely to be killed. However we want to frame it. Certainly not simple, but simpler. Next time, we'll get into the actual beginning of the conquest, the formation of the crown lands, the early battles, the early allies, and most certainly we'll get to the fight with Heron. Maybe not much farther than that, but we'll see. That's the fun extra part that we're doing here with Valar Reedus for Fire and Blood. We don't exactly know where each endpoint will be. We'll be going nice and thoroughly through everything and seeing where it takes us. Question from Dornish Dame. Shield of his people. That title interested me. You can see the link to Lord Protector of the Seven Kingdoms slash Defender of the Realm, but also to Shield that Guard the Realms of Men from the Knights' Watch Vows. Ooh, I like that. Very important. Yeah. That's a good catch, Dornish Dame. As usual, Dornish Dame has lots of good catches. You can have... Yeah, especially thinking in terms of, like, the whatever dream or vision you might have had, that he might have been careful with his language this idea of shield yeah yeah mm, that is a good catch yes maybe something we should think about more marinate a little bit on that one and maybe bring it up again at a later date next week or at some other time trivia answer the question was who has struck Aegon with a blade successfully who's the only person we know of to do that my guess is oris oris baratheon uh, in training hmm? <laughs> oh really and i don't know it you're you're muted yeah but oh i said i think that was the most known trivia answer we've ever had i think like everyone knew it, it was just like an instant cacophony of the same answer Visenya. it's Visenya, yeah oh yeah. Yeah, okay it's a pretty <laughs> a pretty notable tale uh about Visenya doing that it's pretty memorable she tried to argue that he needed a kingsguard devoted kingsguard something like it and he's like i don't need a kingsguard my guards are fine she's like Whoosh! Cuts him in the face. He's like, your guards are slow. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, that's that's harsh. Like, you just cut the king in the face. I mean, he is your younger brother, but still. Your brother. Yeah, <laughs> like, whoa, with, with dark sister. So, you know, I was like, ah, that's 
cut me in the face. Like, <laughs> point, made. Yeah. Point, point made, yes. Literally. Point made on your face. Yes. <laughs> point made on your face. <laughs> Egg on your face. Oh, Egg on, your face is bleeding. <laughs> so yeah, next week we will pick up where we left off. Live streams at three we, Eastern as usual. What if we don't usual. do that? What, what if we don't pick up where we left off and we just pick up somewhere else? Well, that would be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll do that, but maybe we will. You never know. Keep you on your toes. Yeah, so I recommend Before the Dragons, Under the Dragons, Valerian, The Doom, Dragonstone, like my shirt. Valyria 1 and Valyria 2. We have two different Valyria episodes. The Wars of Valyria and the Valyrian Freehold. House Valarian, House Celtigar, Century of Blood. Our Patreon episode on Mantaris. That's a really good one. I probably mentioned some other ones that I don't recall. I'll say, don't even think about coming back here unless you've watched all of those episodes before Sunday. O'Shea is becoming a bit of a Visenya herself here. <laughs> She's projecting. Yes. Yeah, who is that? Is, am I the Visenya and Sean's the Rainies? Your Aegon? Is that right? I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Sean's older than you, but he is maybe, uh, I don't know. As long as I get to marry Z somehow. <laughs> well, you okay, both have to marry me. He's definitely the Rainies, then. then sweet one. So I'm going to spend 10 nights with Sean for every one I spend with you? Is yeah. <laughs> Sean, you're going to die over Dorne. Oh. <laughs> die first. That's bad for you. All right, folks. Thanks for all those of you who subscribe to us voluntarily with a monthly donation via Patreon or Spotify subscription. Both of those are valid options. So is a recurring donation through PayPal. You can set that up on uh, through our website. Our website has other ways to support us as well. We've got some links that we get uh, a cut of if you shop through them. Our Discord. Uh, meeting our next discord hangout is august 24th a we've been meeting. having a lot of fun with that meeting yeah <laughs> meeting meeting. meeting to play games meeting to play yeah. uh, this again we're going to do jackbox games uh we'll, we'll, that won't be the case every time but it has been the first three times for these so yeah i'll say we had a request in the chat too there was a lot there was a discussion about cat pun names in the chat and lady ray requested that we have that little uh round table during the beginning of our discord hangout that we talk about cat pun names, animal right. pun names. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good to me so yeah. more incentive for the rest of y'all you can participate in the audience participation functions of the discord hangouts without being a patron or spotify subscriber but if you are you can also directly play as one of the competing members or yeah writing answers or so there's a lot of ways to participate and That'll course, be August twenty fourth at yeah. nine p.m. Eastern again, and yeah. we will do. We're doing these every month, so if you miss this month, just keep keep your eye out for next month. Yeah, and if you're hearing this much later, you know if you're not hearing this live, you're hearing it months later, weeks later. Just check in with our Discord or Facebook group. We keep this stuff updated, so you can always find out when the next one will be based on what when you find yourself time wise. Thanks as well to where Nina. Are you? Yeah, where are you? When are you? When are you? Yeah. When are you? yeah I have to <laughs> the three i'm the three-eyed crow seeing this from the future mm -hmm. thanks as well to nina for her great notes a lot of excellent discussion topics we appreciate them almost like she's able to we're able to get more out of less with these this style of episode because we're we're really delving in and discussing things a little more there's less overview less just me telling you things more discussion which Nina's additions really, really help fuel that. 
Joey, Jesse, and Bran, thanks to y'all as well for our music, our intro and outro music, and to Michael Clarfeld for the video intro. Thanks as well to our Benjineer. And we'll see you all next time for more Valar Reredus.